welcome everyone to another episode of the Written Nerds Podcast. Today we're going to have uh, James Greenwood on with us to discuss uh, Incident himself. James is a good buddy of mine. He's We've been working together for a while now and uh, we've also not been just working on the job together with the tech rescue team and everything else but we've also been uh, working with Prepare4 together and James is actually one of the first guys uh, that came and started instructing Rip with us right at the very beginning. So uh, I'll let uh, James tell you about his own fire service history, but uh, that's who we're going to be talking today. So James. All right. Well, uh, I'm at uh, my 18th year of service, in City of Vancouver in British Columbia in Canada. Uh, previous to that, I spent about 18 months in the city of Fort McMurray in Northern Alberta as a professional firefighter and EMT. Uh, I am in senior firefighter acting lieutenant. I serve on uh, the HUSAR team, technical rescue, uh, lots of specialties. And uh, I went through this interesting period kind of at the beginning when I was joined the technical rescue team at about 14 years in the job, where I was being dragged back over to my previous specialty, which was the Auto X team, which had just recently taken over RIT at the time with the uh, the birth of the program in in uh with our department and i went through our in-house writ course right in order to maintain that qualification because that was being used for batting on the uh on the rescue engine and uh i suddenly realized that i was at almost the halfway point in my career and i literally knew nothing about it and uh any anybody who goes to writ course for the very first time it's an extremely humbling course to go through you come out of there battered and bruised. You know, you you learn your metal, you learn your capacity for your body, and you because RIT courses are, a lot of time are based around the worst case scenario. You learn what you will do, right, when you're tied up in the entanglement box, or how you're going to react when you're in the dark crawling through a confined space maze or a confidence maze or what have you. So very shortly after taking that uh, course uh i got to know i got to know nathan right and found out that he was starting to teach such a thing right and uh i don't know how the conversation started but lo and behold i ended up uh coming in to help instruct one of his courses i think it's about five years ago now and uh again right sort of fumbling through it and learning as i was going at the beginning because i i really you know, had this mindset that I didn't know nearly enough about something like this. And I needed to get better at it. And one of the ways that I get better at it is to study it, you know, ad nauseum and then teach other people. And what I never realized in the, you know, the, the amount of courses that I've taught over the, the last several years was that the information I would, I would be teaching other people would ultimately be what change the outcome in my own incident. And, uh, you know, one of the, the, the things that I really try to impart on people is the, is the mindset, right? About when you're involved in incidents in general, but specifically in these, in the writ context about learning how to breathe, learning how to calm yourself down, staying out of that adrenalized state keeping the cognitive part of your brain functioning, right? So that you can make good decisions 
which is very, very, very hard to do when you have a personal or emotional connection for the patient, which in any writ context you would, regardless of whether you knew that firefighter or not, that's your brother or sister in that in that bunker gear, right? So that's been the, you know, kind of the where I've tried to focus imparting my knowledge around all of the all of the uh, the drills that we do. I have a bit of background in first responder behavioral health, right? Uh, I went down the rabbit hole about four years ago, really trying to learn that aspect as well, because it was another serious gap in my career that I knew nothing about. And we all know how, how uh, prevalent it is in the, in the fire service to where people struggle from, from the, the, the work that we do and how vital it is to, to develop good habits and, and a healthy lifestyle and everything else that goes with it. So the two have really crossed for me, right? And, uh, and now after, you know, the countless hours of instructing and sort of personal, personal drill and personal readiness, you know, I, I, I found this nexus point. It's actually four weeks ago today that, uh, that I would need all of that in my hand ultimately brought to a extremely successful outcome you know and because uh, I'm sitting here battered and bruised up and I got a few broken vertebrae and uh, but I'm walking and talking and there's no reason I won't recover fully and return to service which I'm very much looking forward to I have a few well several months worth of worth of rehab for that but. So James, yeah. do you feel comfortable kind of walking through the scenario itself, how it played out uh, on the fire that night? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so we uh, we rolled a, a first do, right? Probably I don't know, ten or ten, maybe fifteen blocks from our from our station, between us and fifteens. And uh, I was acting lieutenant that night actually working a sub for another member and uh on our department engine leads i'm on a pickup truck we call it a medic unit but it's a pickup truck with myself and one other firefighter i had a 13-year firefighter with me uh on the on medic nine and then we had a captain and three firefighters in the engine and uh we roll up to a two-story vacant home boarded up there's actually three of them in a row they have one of those blue rent defenses around the outside of it. And there's not a heavy amount of conditions showing. There's a bit of smoke kind of coming from around the eaves, right? It hadn't vented yet. It wasn't through the roof. It wasn't anything, right? We, we knew it was on fire, but nothing super, uh, super active in the outside. Uh, our normal procedure is that the senior officer will assume IC and the junior officer being me will assume the duties of fire attack. So I took my one member, we grabbed our gear, grabbed my little four-foot pike pole off the, off the medic, met the captain at the alpha side, uh, took his two guys, his, uh, his senior firefighter, and we had a, about a nine-month probie with him. Uh, we pulled the fence down, 
right right in front like it was easy enough to grab onto with a hook and just yank to the ground so we could uh get to the alpha side of this thing of this structure uh and in the process uh he had me to take camera off of the off the engine because we don't carry one on the medic truck so we we ascended about seven or eight stairs because the it was a uh top level entry with about two foot worth of basement submerged right so uh, i don't know what you call them on the east coast right that they're uh uh a strange style of house anyway right not your not your, like like a bi-level right what we call them out here so we come up to this uh up this alpha side and there's a you know a four bite sheet of plywood over top of the over top of the front door uh the two guys from the engine strip the plywood off the third member is uh is bringing the securing the hose line bring it up to the up to the door by this time most of the rest of the first line of assignment is there i remember seeing a couple of a uh, couple of members from ladder 15 just looking at helmet flashes right uh coming up the stairs as well i told them to stay man the hose uh after we'd stripped the the door literally right behind the door was was clutter everywhere right and uh we started basically a daisy chain of pulling crap out of the out of the door well before we could even push into the structure because there was chunks of mattress and furniture and and whatever else there and uh so we're we it took us a, a few seconds to kind of clear the clear the doorway and the entrance way of this place first firefighter through the door was the senior firefighter from engine nine on the nozzle followed by the proby they pushed in about two feet knocked down what they could see from the from just inside that uh that doorway i'm kind of behind them surveying what's going on we push in a little bit further they still have to move some more debris out of the way and uh at this point in time the bulk of what we could see for fire was knocked down but visibility was awful right you know i would estimate it at 10 percent so uh a lot of kind of feeling our way around lots of lots of work with the dick camera i told the two guys on the hose line to sit tight about six feet in the in the entrance way in what was probably the main living room on the uh the alpha bravo corner of this this structure and uh we proceeded i took my other my other firefighter and we started left-hand search on this place because i knew we needed to vent it out so that we could make conditions more tenable for for uh, anybody that we may have found in there because these vacant homes have become a hotbed like they are everywhere in the world for the most vulnerable population we have out there right because it was also quite air uncharacteristically cold for vancouver there was snow on the ground and it was you know minus five do do your american math i don't know what it is in fahrenheit but anyway so it, it was cold it was below freezing anyway so I'm feeling around the left-hand side wall. I go from the alpha side to Bravo side. I found a window. It looked too small kind of for what I wanted to be venting. It had plywood on the outside of it already as well. So I would have had to remove it all from the inside. Had a conversation with my senior firefighter really quickly about whether we should bother yet because we hadn't seen the rest of the, of the compartment. And uh, we didn't know for sure. I had not confirmed by, by the fact that I had not been everywhere in the house that we had found all the fire yet. And I didn't want to be changing the ventilation profile of this this structure before I was very confident in uh, in what we had going on. So I made my way back over to the 
to the hose team, we found that there was another room immediately to the right of the living room that was probably about 10 by 10. Conditions were, were pretty fair in there. You could see the floor. You could you could tell that uh, that there was nothing going on in that room. And uh, right around this time, I get uh, uh, one of the senior firefighter from from the engine uh, yells at me. I come over to him, and he finds the first hole in the floor. We have a what looked like about one square foot uh, burn through about I would estimate five to six feet in from the alpha side wall in the middle of the room. So I swipe it with the camera quick to make sure we're not sitting on top of the chimney because obviously had we been, we would have been the hell out of there, right? And uh, conditions were conditions were good underneath. There was no no change on the camera. Um, so I, I ordered everybody the circumference of the room as soon as we found that. Said, make sure you got your hand on a wall. So we're staying on the strongest parts of the, the floor structure, right? And uh, <clears throat> now we're inching through this place because I I had stayed on the wall uh, during my initial search, tapping the floor with my four foot five pole as we're going, right? So now I'm moving. Uh, and now, now we're kind of back towards where we had initially come in and there's a lot of radio traffic because uh, as soon as I found the hole, I asked for, I asked IC to send me a, send a team to the lower floor, right, to check it out, to find out what was going on. And uh, I also asked what was happening with the, if we had ventilation opening on the Charlie side of the, of the, uh, the building so that maybe we could start thinking about PPDing this place once I had, uh, once I'd completed my, my initial search and, and suppression. And uh, there was radio traffic about making sure I exercised extreme caution, which I acknowledge, right, based on the risk profile of this house. And that second means of egress is being sent up, set up. And then I got confirmation that the Charlie side ventilation hole had been made. The problem was at that point in time is that they had confirmed there was ventilation hole, but there was zero conditions changed inside. There's no depressurization. There was no uh, uh, improvement of conditions. There was there was nothing. We were still in the same reduced visibility and uh, residual heat that we had we had encountered when we first came in. Uh, so I I ordered the hose team to stand fast where they were because we knew that the ground was good where they were. And I I took my other firefighter from from my unit and I told him stay on my stay on my six and we're going to go find out what's happening between us and the Charlie side. I sort of uh, I sort of uh, figured maybe there was a door between us and them. Maybe the kitchen was in the back and there was just a, a doorway between the the uh, living room and the kitchen. So we're proceeding down basically what would be the center bearing wall of this uh, this structure. And uh, we crossed, a, we crossed a hearth, right? Because I remember feeling bricks under my feet and feeling a mantelpiece. And uh, as, I'm, as I'm transitioning from the hearth to the, to the next part of what would be wood floor, I feel a bunch of mattress springs. And uh, I pull the mattress springs out of the way. I tap the floor again, right? It's, it's there, sounds solid. I tap the floor again, I take two steps and then I disappeared. I met gravity. My other firefighter was six inches behind me, 
and he stayed up and I fell straight. I, I breached the floor. Apparently, I, there was even a lap of plaster ceiling below. I didn't notice so after the fact. So I went through the floor, through the ceiling, and I landed on the tank stem of my Scott SCBA. And uh, during the during the fall, I had my face piece torn off my face, and it ended up at the top of my head. And by virtue of my chin strap being done up on my on my fire helmet, it prevented it from being taken off my taken right off my head. So my helmet ended up back here. Face piece with the MMR is straight up here on the top of my head. And uh, I remember that acrid fire smell tickling my my uh, my nose and knowing that this is exactly what's just happened to me. I don't remember thinking anything else other than then my face piece needs to be back on my face now instantly right and uh down there just a flashlight in the dark in the conditions that i previously described i managed to get two hands on it rip cord it right back onto my face and uh and make sure that i was uh actively holding my breath during that uh that ordeal to uh to avoid inhaling any of the the IDLH atmosphere and immediately after re-securing my face piece I was on the radio uh, broadcasting my mayday and the, uh, the the really interesting part I, I think about is that this idea that they teach you in tabletop that you're going to have some type of conversation back and forth with IC when you broadcast the mayday the fallacy I can tell you that I yelled my information into that radio and I told them exactly who I was, exactly what had happened, and exactly what had, where I was, right, in the most efficient manner possible that I can think of, right, at 11 out of 10 versus per volume, right? So that because there was a, you know, that that was the next link in the chain of survival of this, this event, right? And, uh, and then I sat there and waited. And then I could hear my guys up top planning the rescue, you know, talking about using a Fresno ladder or something like that. And I remember yelling at them not to, because I'm looking up kind of at what I've come through. And I can't really see a lot because all I've got is my flashlight in the start basement. And, uh, and then hearing the radio traffic just go crazy. I call it the Mayday machine, right? You can literally hear it spool up like the turbo on a diesel truck. Right when the when IC starts to talk to rescue coordinators, talking to the RIT team, right, and then they're doing the tack channel change and this this whole process that you run through when you do your tabletop to become a company officer, and uh, very interesting to sit there and listen to when you have nothing else to listen to when you're holding your body perfectly perfectly still and you're you know tactically breathing at this point in time trying because. My next thought process after calling the mayday was I need to stretch every cubic foot worth of air that I have left in my left in my tank. And uh, a period of time goes by, and uh, it's strange because I, I don't have a I don't have a, an amount of time that I can say that it was. I know that it was long enough to sit there and ponder, right? But short enough that there was no time when I felt panicked. 
right? Is that this this is the uh, where the conditioning and this somewhat tactful mindset that I've tried to impart on students over the last last several years that I've been teaching that you can't predict these things from happening. What you need to try and predict and prepare for is what you're going to do when they happen. Because I can tell you that four weeks ago at this time, I had no idea I would go through a floor. I had no idea that I would fracture two vertebrae in the fall. I had no idea that some piece of debris from a house would, would land on my knee and uh, split it open, but not cut my pants. And uh, so there's this, this period of time that goes by again, where the radio traffic is hot and heavy and then it, and then it disappears. And then, then what I hear is I hear the RIT team coming through the wall. And I can tell you that's some of the most soothing sounds that I've ever heard in my life. When you hear the ferocity of your brothers and sisters coming for you, because you can tell when you're in there, I had nothing else to listen to. And then I'm hearing them hit the side of this house and I, I hear them tearing the plywood off it. And then I hear them take the bars because there's bars on the lower windows as well. And then they take the glass and I saw this flash of light in the corner of the room, probably 20 feet away, like directly diagonal away from where I was, where I was laying. And, and then seeing the, the first firefighter from the, the RIT team stick his head through. And then I remember yelling at him and he, yelled back for an air check this time on flashing yellow. And uh, I didn't even give him a chance really to do much more. And then I was on my feet and then I made that window. I ran from the position I was in until my head and shoulders were out that window on the threshold of it. The sill was about four feet in height and they put hands on me and then I started to lose consciousness because that was the that was the end of me, and that was where my trust in my life was turned over to my brothers and sisters. And uh, the first two that grabbed me was a first six probationer. This was the first fire he'd ever been to. His dad's an assistant chief on our job. And the other guy, I think he's about a 12 or 13-year firefighter. And I remember them holding on to the pack and feeling, man, this feels good because I'm done. I, I had nothing left at that point in time. And now it's time to turn it over to them. And, uh, you know, 30 to 45 seconds goes by, you know, I'm kind of estimating this because again, I don't really have a concept of time. It wasn't very long that there was like this mob of people outside there. When I talked to, uh, when I talked to the first guy that came through the window, he said there was like 10 people there instantly, right? which is exactly what I would do in the same situation. I would have more, more hands needed, right? So I'm, I'm kind of lying there on the sill a little bit. They have hands on. They're starting to pull the helmet, the face piece. Uh, spine board goes in right to the sill, uh, right under, between my chest and the sill. They kind of pull me up by the SPBA, throw the spine board in. And then I remember just disappearing right out of the house, right? They yanked me straight out onto the spine board. And, uh, and then from there, the, the the tank, the face beast mask all, all disappeared off me. And then I went, uh, they carried me belly down uh, over to where the ambulance was staged. And then from there I was log rolled, uh, log rolled off the off the spine board onto the onto the ambulance services spine board. And uh, there was more of a more of an injury check 
the, the Rick guys have done the same thing as well. Like by that by that time I could nail it down to my back hurts and my knee hurts, but nothing more specific than that. And uh, uh, at this point in time, I'm still in my in my bunker jacket, bunker pants, and boots. And I've already been turned over to the ambulance service. And this is where the this sort of idea that you can there's there's this time when you can only laugh or cry about this. So now they're asking me what's hurting, and I'm telling them that the most most injured thing on me right now is my ego, by far, right? And uh, and the uh, one paramedic kind of looks down because. And he's like, how are we going to get your jacket off? Are we going to, you know, do you think we should cut it off? And I'm like, man, if you try and cut this stuff off, we're going to be here all night, right? So I end up teaching them how to take my coat off, right? The same way that we've taught dozens and dozens of students how to do gear removal, right? And, uh, you know, and it ends up being this, uh, being this somewhat, you know, uh, laughing and joking as I'm being strapped to a bloody spine board, you know, and, uh, Loaded in the back of Amits and and uh, I was talking to one paramedic as I'm enjoying their service on my on my Uber to the uh, Vancouver General Hospital, and they said when the, when the thing came over for their run sheet and it said Mayday on it, they're like, "What the hell is this? A plane crash?" Right? Like they it, the, the terminology didn't didn't line up, and because there's only been three that I know about on our job, because it's still a relatively new, somewhat I don't know. Uh, negative connotation maybe right where people are scared to scared to put yourself out there but i can tell you is i didn't hesitate for one millisecond after i had fixed my own problem i wasn't going to fix the rest of it i wasn't getting out of that basement with bars on the window and a piece of three-quarter inch plywood screwed to the outside of it i'm not i lost my pipe full i'd lost my kit camera the you know and i'm down there with a fractured spine and a messed up knee so it was uh it was a pretty, pretty unbelievable experience, right? That I've, uh, I've had a lot of time flat on my back to sit there and dissect every second of it, right? And, uh, and seeing the wins, right? And identifying, you know, where we can clean up our training and really how this can be used to help educate people, right? And how that I can directly link my personal training and my my you know assisting to educate other people to the decision making process because the spinal fracture that's just time time and physio the conscious decision that when that that part of my olfactory sense went off that i was in that idlh atmosphere that i don't get too many breaths of this and to the best of my recollection i took zero i took zero breaths in that idlh atmosphere I purposely held my breath until I had put that bloody mask back on and, uh, and then did, you know, the, and then whatever tactical breathing I had to do to stretch it as far as possible, because there's this, there's this unknown time. I, I knew that they were coming for me. I knew that this was going to work out just fine, but you have a bunch of time by yourself and you need to keep yourself out of that adrenalized state. And again, to the best of my right, that's exactly what I did. This is, this is where the training determines outcomes. You can't predict the problems, but you can predict how you will react because you will revert to your lowest level of training when the shit hits the fan. And in my particular case, that's exactly what happened four weeks ago today.
games. <clears throat> um, there's a lot to unpack there, man. I mean, that's <laughs> that story is is amazing. One, um, in in multiple ways, but uh, if you don't mind, since you just kind of left off with the the breathing portion and your your mask coming off, do you mind if we talk about that for a little bit? Um, yeah, go ahead. Please. So. When you guys teach survival and writ up both with your department and in Nathan's program, do you guys talk about that with the students about, you know, something happens, you you find yourself in this situation called the mayday, but specifically the prioritize and execute. I find a lot of times in programs that I've attended and even helped assist teach where, especially to, to the survival programs where, you know, we, we stress so much, so hard on the, oh, you found yourself in a bad spot, call your mayday. It's one of the first things you need to do. But we don't always teach the, the really quick self-assessment, which is exactly what you described. I mean, you, you did a self-assessment, you prioritized and executed the things you needed to do consciously or unconsciously it sounds like it was mostly unconscious but you were observing it in your brain like the decisions being made yeah. um, because yeah I wonder how many people placed in that situation would go through that same process where they evaluated their conditions real quick they realized I don't want to breathe number one number two I need my mask back on next step and number three then I'll call my mayday because I, I am not going to solve the rest of this problem. I, I think the, the real thing to, to, to pick up on uh, with, with all of that stuff is that I'm nearing two decades in the fire service, the professional service, and I'm pretty sure the outcome would be different if you subtracted a few years off. I'm okay. pretty sure that, that if you took away the time that I've spent working with Nathan, my own personal journey, the time I've spent with students in the confidence, the confidence trailer we have, the confidence maze, that if you removed all of that, I think this would have been different, right? I, I, I can't speak to how, because I, I, I described it and I believe exactly what you said, right? It's that I didn't really, I wasn't really behind the wheel. What was behind the wheel there was the fact that this this was all that I'd ever taught students. This is all that I was ever taught, and this is all that I ever had myelinated in my own brain. Was that given this situation, is that you have priorities? As I said, the, the fact that I fractured T10 and T11 that's irrelevant at this point in time. The fact that I've blown my knee up irrelevant. So those those are injuries which will heal with medical science. Being in an IDLH atmosphere without your respiratory protection was a was an immediate problem because the other night I was actually lying there in bed smelling it again you know how you, you, you develop this this muscle memory this, this body memory right because of events like this they become burned into your brain right this is just science right and sitting there you know for about 10 minutes with that stink right we all know what it smells like we all know right anybody who's been in there because that's what you smell like after the fire because you're you're off gas right and, and then there, there was this, you know, and the part that I find amazing about it was that, was that immediate reaction that I didn't take one breath, not one. I sat there, hold, you know, and we're, we're 
six or seven, eight minutes into this firefight, I'm working, right? You would have mm-hmm. thought the, you know, the cardiovascular drive in your body, you would have wanted to draw air in. But instead, what I had was I had the complete block of what would be normal because there was this massive problem that I had. And, uh, and that to me, because I work hard at things that I do, you know, I have to work hard to be fit. I have to work hard to maintain my diet. I have to work hard to be, you know, good at my job. I'm not naturally skilled in some ways, like, you know, like, like lots of people out there. And, uh, but I also have this, you know, insane Irish stubbornness, right. Where I, I, I find a problem and then I can't stop until I've researched the hell out of it. Right. And, uh, and that's, that's exactly what I blame for all of this is the fact that I've, I've dedicated the time. I've dedicated the time to teaching other people because one of the things I, I, I do a lot of is when I, uh, when I run the, the station for the, for the confidence maze, right. Because we teach a lot of paid on call and straight up volunteers. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are not, are not incredibly fit, right. Because they're not professionals and, uh, and, you know, we're batting near a thousand for getting people through these things. And I know that when I'm in there, when those people get stuck, right, they find some spot either in a squeeze or they start to panic a little bit because your MMR echoes in your head when you're in those. I know what it was like when I go through the, the confidence maze or when I'm in the entanglement box. And if you let that MMR echo in your head, it starts to throw yourself off because you get into that sympathetic tone, right? You get that adrenaline starting to surge through you. And now you can't think you're out of the problem. And uh, every time I've seen them, because you can tell, right, when they're when they start really hopping and popping, and I tell them to stop. I tell them to stop, and I said, I need you to start pacing out your breathing. I need you to find a happy place. I need you to picture yourself on a beach in Maui. Whatever you got to do, right, to clear your mind, because the only way through the next problem is thinking through it, and you have to calm yourself down in order to get there. And so far, I, I think that that uh, that we've been extremely successful in getting people who probably otherwise would never want to do this, right? We've got them through it by by by. Those are simple steps, along with the heavy encouragement afterwards. Is that you will go back and you will practice this, right? Is that four seven and box breathing has been something that's been a regular thing in my life for the better part of four years, right? To where I use that along with other techniques to, uh, to get myself out of that, you know, adrenalized state. Those, right. And uh, those techniques you talk about, <clears throat> um, it's something uh, that we started teaching in our programs where I work in on our own a few years ago. And especially we were kind of introduced to it from a number of different angles and different people, but a paper I read, I think it was Brian Brush wrote it for his executive fire officer program called the missing pieces of firefighter self-survival. And he talks specifically about the mental skill set. And I'm listening to you talk and it matches almost identical to the things that we talk about. And I'm wondering if, if some of your sources are the same or if we've stumbled into the same things from some some other stuff um, you know I'm, I'm willing to bet that if you looked in the reference section of his he yeah. probably is tied to a bunch of the the same extremely cultural competent psychologists that i, I i've managed to meet in my my short career because I, I have a a long list of them because one of the organizations that i have volunteered with for the not for the last 
14 months, obviously, but previous last 14 months, I've been a, a peer volunteer for a group called West Coast Post Trauma Retreat in Portland. And it's a week long decompression retreat for first responders. Awesome. And uh, they bring in usually six to seven patients to about 12 to 16 peers. And they try to match occupations to occupations, right? And it's open yeah. to law enforcement, <clears throat> law enforcement, fire and, and, uh, and paramedics. And you learn an incredible amount about yourself when you're in a place like that, because you're, you're all at, at, a, at like a Salvation Army camp, you're sequestered there, you're basically on 24 seven when you're out there, right? And uh, the bulk of the psychologists that treat these people or counselors are ex-fire or ex-police. Guys that serve, guys and gals that served 30 years first, and then went back and got a master's or a PhD. Okay. So they bring that intense cultural competence of actually having served in the uniform, have been society's mop, right? And then their their now final goal for their 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 after the job job is that they will help repair the damage, right? That they've done <clears throat> by by virtue of of this line of work. And that was my first real exposure to to the see here feel model and to the tactical breathing. I had heard about it hadn't really bought into it, right? Yeah. Because it was, uh, you know, because it, you know, fire departments are tough to change. Yeah. You know, they, they, they sit on this anecdotal evidence and they sit on this tradition for, yep. you know, 150 years, some departments, right? I mean, we're 1886 in Vancouver when we became professional, you know, like the, these are, these are, these are, are active things you have to fight against. And the next thing you have to fight against is that we all start off young and dumb. We do, right? Is that I, I prove very much that I'm not Superman. I prove that I break and I bleed like a normal human being, right? Just because I wear 65 pounds worth of, worth of gear, right, does not change. It changed the outcome a little bit, right? And the physics of how I landed, right, is actually extremely fortunate. I think the two largest vertebrae in the back, give or take, the break, you know, the ones that withstand most on force. The fact that in my fall, I went from standing, rotating, and hit the tank first, not my tailbone. Like these are... These are all, you know, fortunate aspects of the PPE, but, but, uh, you know, there, there's this, this mindset from the academy, right? When you get hired on, and I remember being that, I remember being 21, being in a city of Fort McMurray, you know, with my clean, crisp uniform and feeling untouchable, you know, and uh, here I am, you know, all these years later, uh, having gone through an incident like this, which basically has put my life on hold. And for anybody else out there wears the uniform, they know what I mean, is that you, we're not very good at sitting around, right? We're not yeah. very good at, uh, at taking three to six months off because right now I'm sitting here with a question mark. You know, I, I don't know how long this is going to take. I know yeah. that, that uh, in three or four more weeks, there's a good chance my spine will have healed and then it's physio and then it's return to work, right? And there's, there's, there's a whole process to this, to this uh, rehab, right? And uh you know, and I, I, I get bored easily, right? Like most people that put on this uniform. That's why we did this in the first place. This is why I don't bang nails for a living, right? Because this is, this is what I know and what I love. And, uh, and there, there's a, a, you were talking about mindset earlier on. I've been reading a book called The Book of Five Rings by Mayamata Musashi, right? I don't know if you guys are familiar with it or not, right? It's, yeah. Uh, from 1643, an undefeated Ronan right? Samurai without a master. And he has an interesting, when one of his, one of the parts he talks about that 
there was no other option than winning in his mind when he faced off against the like each clan he would visit he would challenge their best and brightest and he was undefeated for years and years and years and years and years right and this idea that you you go in and you believe that you're going to win from the beginning because the actual war a lot of time is in your own head and uh that was really echoed with uh another great quote from muhammad ali where he talks about that the fight is not one in the ring it's one in the gym beforehand yep. and about the preparation before he ever danced under the light i don't remember exactly what the quote is but it's something like that and uh, i i'm sitting here again quite humbled you know I'm, I'm finding a lot of a lot of humility these days in how vital that training was to have the best possible outcome from this uh this event you know um, and i like Sorry, go, keep going. No, I, I just said that what I tell people is there's only one thing that went wrong. This one, I challenged the laws of gravity. That's it. <laughs> Everything else that needed to needed to happen happened exactly when it needed to happen, right? And now, you know, I I have time, and I I will I'll be back on a fire truck before I know it, right? And uh, and right now, the most important thing that I can do with this you know, is to, is to impart it, to share it. Yeah. Because there's, there's so much, to, there's so much good that came out of this, you know, and, uh, and that needs to be, that needs to be out there because I, I had such a, such an interesting perspective having been training people over the last several years in this. And then, and then now having this experience where my own training and dedication to it changed my outcome. On, and, uh, on, on the training portion and, and kind of circling back to the mental skill set here, <clears throat> um, I've learned to kind of categorize them. And this is not my term. This is from somebody else. Um, I believe it's from a thing on the History Channel. But to wrap all those mental skill sets up into a package, they labeled it the big four. And they include tactical breathing. Uh, positive mental mindset or positive self-talk, goal setting and segmenting, and then visualization. Have you heard of that package before? It, it, you're talking about all of those right now, and that's why I, I ask. Uh, never, never described in that way, shape, or form. But it's not dissimilar to to stuff that is brought out when I when I met that volunteer group with WCPR in Portland. A lot of those same things become uh, like, like the see, see here, feel model, right? That they okay. teach the vets, right? When they become overwhelmed in places like Walmart or Costco, right? It's, it's, it's about visualizing things. It's about engaging your brain. It's about engaging your olfactory sense, right? So it's very similar, but the, but I, I think that that's a, that, that's a great compact, easy way to think about it. And then you can, you can choose, you know, how you're going to exercise each one of those, how you're going to interpret it, right? So exactly. Like it. And that's, that's what we started putting into our survival program and our RIT program with our recruit classes a few years ago. So they're getting a full day almost of mental skill preparation before they go out into the survival uh, physical skills and confidence courses so that they can practice them during that time. And the instructors are all on board so that as they are going through the course, they can sit there and say, hey, take a second, 
take a breath, organize your thoughts, um, and remember to visualize your situation. Remember, don't get overwhelmed. Goal set, like you were talking about, segmenting, prioritize the problem, execute what you need. It keep And then the tactical breathing portion keeps the heart rate low so that you engage your cognitive, you know, your, your prefrontal cortex and your cognitive abilities. And you said it earlier, I, I completely agree. You have to keep the brain engaged to think through this problem. And we kind of train it from two aspects. You train it from the reaction aspect and then the being able to engage in the thinking portion. So you immediately react into, if we teach you the, the skill sets uh, to deal with the, the problems like breaching walls and cutting wires and all that, we'll, and calling the mayday, you're gonna be able to do that anyways in the high stress. But if we also teach you to stay engaged, like you are doing, you think through your problem and you're better able to communicate with who's around you. And, and like yeah. you were doing, you know, I could see what's going on outside. I could hear those things. I knew what those sounds were. I knew that they were working on coming to me. And when I saw my exit, I was able to make that decision and say, I'm going to go over there. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll say that like, uh, we won't we won't talk about our department stuff because that's where you're gonna have to start editing large chunks out of this. But uh, <laughs> what, when we're teaching, we break it down as in our slides and stuff. And what we're talking about is we actually just break it down to breathe, plan, act. Okay. So breathe. That's your self assessment. Just breathe. Don't panic. Check yourself out. Plan what's going to happen next. Plan it out. There's your visualization, and now you got to act on it. So make those short achievable goals. And as you start acting on it and you chip away at each goal, your panic and your everything else is going to fade away and not be able to come in because you're achieving those steps towards success. And you make those small little things. First thing, get that mask back on. Boom. Step one, done. Call that mayday. Step two, done. Right. Okay. Now what? Plan that out. Keep it calm. Keep the breathing. Next plan, next step, move it forward, right? And we do go over that in ours for sure. And uh, like James, when James is talking about our confidence maze, it's always pretty funny because I, I never actually think that maze is that crazy, but we get to see it in broad daylight and look at it from, from everything else. But everything, everybody, always, and it's just in the trailer, right? We, we've got a few obstacles in that, but everyone always comes out of that thing like, oh man. Didn't think that trailer was that big until I came back out the other side. <laughs> but, but, uh, you know, one thing I want to hit on, James, that you said, and um, Jim, I actually took this from your guys' study um, that you guys had printed, is you say, uh, basically, you got through this because of your training, right? And you, you accredit to having all these skill sets developed through helping other people, you know, doing the evolutions yourself. And this is what you fell back onto instantly. You know, I, departments out there, as soon as something like this happens, it, they tend to just, um, they tend to just, hey, this is how we're going to operate from now on, right? And it drives me nuts because instead of like addressing the true concerns or the situation that happened, but we're going to throw a policy at it or a procedure and, and figure out how to go from there. Um, what really, I think you said it earlier is we need to get people out there 
hands-on training, light out conditions, and, and make it as realistic as possible to help kind of simulate these scenarios. And, and that's one big thing, you know, to take away from this. And that, that was one of Snodgrass's big things too. And we talked to him too, right? Is that stress inoculation. We can't, we can't namby pamby this stuff uh, because we don't want to give the guys a hard time or we want to be back for coffee in time. We're doing everybody a disservice, right? You've got to have that stress inoculation. I, uh, I've issued a challenge about 180 times now with the amount of people that have, that have uh, called and texted about it. And uh, I've asked them to evaluate yourself honestly. Could you do what I did? And I'm not trying to sound superhuman. It's that I can trace back exactly why I knew what to do, right? Because of the training, because of the dedication to the training, because of my own, my own self, uh, you know, my, my self search for this knowledge. Because, you know, I, I, uh, I have, I said, I have this really strange combination now where from having trained it for so long and then having been a RIT patient and the, uh, one of the guys that I talked to one of the guys, the RIT team, he actually called me a model RIT patient. He knew exactly where I was. He knew exactly what had happened. And when he opened the window, I ran over. To him. You know, the, the, this is the model, which I wish that every single RIT rescue that happens worldwide would be like that. Unfortunately, that's not true. We know this from, from all the studies out there and all the, the incidences, right? And, uh, but that is something that I, I, I tried to impart on everybody. It didn't matter what their rank was, how new they were, how senior they were, it didn't matter. Because it's incredibly important to me to, that people, people take this, right? And if, if you're not confident in getting your face piece back on with your gloves on while it's tangled up in your helmet after you've gone through a floor with a fractured vertebrae and a messed up knee, right? You, you need to start thinking about that, right? You need to start thinking about how am I going to achieve the ability to do this? And maybe, uh, and maybe that's not going to be your problem, but I'm sure happy that I knew what to do in that specific situation, right? right. So this is what, what I come back to is that training changed the outcome and that's it there, there's 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 no evidence to speak in any other way and uh and uh as uh, as you're talking about but it about it needs to be gritty and realistic right like I, I i have ideas for when i'm back on the floor about how to put people in the dark how to forcibly rip their face piece off to see how they react you know right. that this is something that you that you, you can't predict is going to happen but you really, really, really need to be ready if it does. That, that is the most vital piece of PPE wear, right? Is that, that breathing protection. That is, that is the weak link, the most vulnerable part of the human body in that ideal age atmosphere, at least as far as I'm concerned anyway. And, uh, and that's, a, uh, that's a, a reality that, that people need to, to, to grab onto, right? Because it, it's pretty easy to ignore this stuff because it's extremely rare. Right, like on, on the whole, from the amount of events that we roll in North America, because I'm reading some insane stats, right? Because it, it, it's not very many seconds between house fires. It's not, right. like, I think it's 30, 40 seconds or something North America wide where, where one of our brothers and sisters are rolling another job. That's it, right? And things like this, like going through the floor, even though I tried to do every single bit of due diligence, every single bit of due diligence, I got caught anyway, tried to do everything right got caught anyway but i've also been to plenty of fires where everything gets completely messed up and everything's fine 
we just lose the building. Right. You know, and that to me was a hard thing that I struggled with for a couple of weeks, right? When I was sitting there digesting every single second of what had happened, every command decision I made, you know, and the, the insane part, right, which, which keeps coming back to me, which has been told to me a couple dozen times now, is, uh, is that people are happy it was me that went through that tour because I knew what to do. That's hard to hear, man. That's, yeah. that's a tough thing to, to digest because you want everybody else that's in that situation to change their outcome. It's like being on one of those choose your own adventure novels that you used to read when you were in grade school. It's that there was a decision I made which directly affected the outcome. And then right. there was decisions that the rescue team made which directly affected the outcome. I owe my life to about 10 people right now. Some of them I don't even know. Some I'd never met before. That was one more thing I was gonna, I was gonna kind of touch on, right? It's because trust is this insane thing in our line of work, right? Because I can work with people. I can come in as their acting company officer. I've never met them, not once, not one day, right? And you have to develop this, this, this rapport. You have to develop it instantly to where you can literally, because there was a handoff in this. There was a time when I was done. I was losing consciousness at that still. My journey was finished at this point in time. Now it was up to them. They're the ones that completed this. And trust is, you know, it's hard earned a lot of the time. We're a bunch of, we're a bunch of hypervigilant people. Hypervigilant is just another word for paranoid, right? It really is, right? And, and, uh, and in, you know, and, uh, and trust is tough to come by from paranoid people. And, uh, you know, that's, that's something that, that, you know, your reputation precedes you, your attitude precedes you, you know, your, your sort of leadership capital precedes you, you know, that to develop this, uh, develop this trust because man, I, it was, as I said, it was soothing hearing them hit that wall. You could hear the ferocity in it, right? You could hear that they were coming for you and that changes your, your sort of, uh, and this is something when they did the debrief afterwards, uh, the debrief for the for everybody else other than myself was done by a by a psychologist. He called me to ask me if I had a message to to pass along to that group, and uh, I told him that well the big thing I filled in some blanks right so he could uh, he could kind of speak to my speak to my portion a little bit, but I said that 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 uh, that noise increased my survival reflex. You know, that, that this idea, again, where just like Musashi talks about, is that I already knew I was going to win. I knew this was going to work out, but there was an unknown amount of time with some, some people, one of them being a complete stranger, that I was now going to trust with the rest of this journey. And uh, depending on the size of your, size of your agency, that could, be, that could be true for the, for the next person you have on this uh, that you're interviewing, right? Because there, there's... 800 firefighters in Vancouver, right? And as you get senior and more specialized, you lose track of the, the rest of the world, right? And uh, as I said, there, there's so much, so much win in all of this based on people's personal dedication. You know, the, the, uh, the outcome was the absolute most positive that it could be. And I'm incredibly grateful for all of that. I'm incredibly grateful that, that it can be used to educate other people, you know, and that, uh, that I hope that this sort of inspires people to, to look at the tactical mindset to all the things that you were describing before, Jim, about, about mental preparation for this, because 
I personally hope that nobody ever has to be in the situation again, but we know that that's not true. We know that it will happen again, but that you can change the outcomes of these things sometimes, right? Sometimes you really can dig deep. You really can bring back what you learned, you know, if you've practiced, practiced enough physics. The brain loves efficiency. You build those neural pathways around training and you, that is where it reverts to. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah. And a little bit of, about the building itself, I feel like I should touch on too from, obviously I wasn't there that night, but uh, talking to one of the captains that walked through the building after the incident. So that, uh, what they figure happened with that fire is there was no fire in the basement. The fire was all on the first floor. And they figured it actually managed to get the right conditions in this mattress to burn down through the subfloor, which was fur TNG. And then it was fur two by eights and it burned out the joists within the wall space of the fur two, or in the floor space, sorry, of the fur two by eights, which had lath and plaster ceiling below but then there was actually a false ceiling below that, a drywall as well. So James went through two, two, two ceilings. So there was zero fire condition at all um, in, the, in the basement. We, we and, actually had one similar to that a few years ago at work where the fire started in a can light in the basement ceiling and first floor floor space. And it, it, it didn't start and burned down but it burned in that floor space and it took a while because it's it's vent limited in there but it yeah. ate and ate and ate and it finally burned out the band board and through the floor so it had fire exposing on side charlie making it look like it had vented out of the first floor at the sliding door at the balcony and as the crews moved in they didn't have they had a ton of smoke because of this open stairwell floor plan but they didn't have a ton of heat they knocked down the fire and the nozzle firefighter got up and moved forward a little bit to see if they'd made some progress and found that hole where everything had started and right down through and um that that got me thinking a few years ago about kind of categorizing the different because the different floor collapses that happened on the fire ground and the causes of them because we talk like in, in Project Mayday, they talk about through the floor, through the stairs and stuff, but we do, really don't get into the different types. And mm -hmm. what I kind of learned in thinking through these <clears throat> problems from a writ standpoint, right? You have a different response model to them. So if you have a basement fire that burns in the basement, burns through the floor, and you have a firefighter who falls through the floor into that compartment, you basically have two scenarios, either the fire is still burning and they fell into that fire or the fire may have been extinguished, but it weakened all the floor systems above, then they come through. So you have two different outcomes to that same cause of a, of a collapse. So the writ would have to respond kind of two different ways. They could respond, you know, and the way I mean is the emergency there is you have a firefighter who may have traumatic injuries, but is in no serious danger of burning and has air or you have a firefighter who's burning and that again comes back to ron's favorite topic of the hose line in writ yeah. um, but then this is another scenario that we were thinking about was 
you have in, in, I noticed this from the amount of acquired structures we burned a few years ago that we didn't do any basement fires. We nearly, ne we almost never did a basement fire scenario, but in all the fires we lit in bedrooms with hardwood floors, or even after pulling the carpet out just with the OSB subfloor, a lot of times we would end up with weakened floor systems. The subfloor is gone and this, the actual floor system is starting to, to decompose or, or fall apart as well. And we've had to like, you know, okay, we yell, not yellow tape because that melts away, but secure that room so no one can wander into it during the next evolution. And even if it doesn't burn into the actual frame of the floor, if it burns away that subfloor, or weakens it enough, there's enough, there is enough of a gap that we can now fall in and get stuck in the floor, if not go all the way through. And then the next one was, so I think I categorized it into floor, fire below, fire in the floor space itself, fire in the compartment that the firefighter is in and, and falls down in, you know, through. And then uh, the last one would be kind of the, the firefighters that are trapped under the falling debris like when we talked to tim in that scenario where that response writ response is completely separate and different than the other writ responses but uh we were it goes back to that flexibility right like we yeah. we have a habit to respond writ and staff writ the exact same way whether we're in a five thousand square foot commercial structure an apartment building or a bungalow or a trailer but yeah. yet we'll, we'll adapt our response to a structure fire in all those buildings completely differently but yeah. we don't adapt our writ response to the type of emergency that all that stuff and and i think that's the main point there jim, that maybe you're getting at jim is that we need that info so that we can adapt our writ response just like we adapt our fire and emergency response i'm not sending a high angle team yeah. to go deal with a hazmat incident Right? We that, have all these specialties. That's kind of where I'm getting into. And then back to James's point of by breaking these scenarios down and thinking about what the actual problem is, we can then build up our deployment model from the RIT standpoint and have a mental plan and then train on that plan. I can train my crew now when we're in RIT and we're the I-RIT. We've gathered the essential RIT pack. We have a hose line if we can. I now have a, a battery powered reciprocating saw with the different types of blades. I throw a sling on it and then I have a search rope Those, and the set of irons, my camera, you know, we, we break it down to self gear for each position that we have in our pockets or on our person. And then I writ team gear and then uh, writ group gear. And it builds obviously as the crews come in, but the amount of, gear we have is the initial writ engine without any special service there to support us at that point um, on the writ side of things i can i can choose my deployment model for my crew and they know like oh it was a floor collapse okay where was the fire where did we see fire before we had the floor collapse what do we need to take to whatever entrance point we're moving to and and some of that comes back from the mayday firefighter themselves and then other of it may not, we may not have that communication with the Mayday firefighter, you know, and for a number of reasons, either consciousness of them, their, their mindset, or just horrible radio uh, conditions, or too much radio traffic. Yeah. 
But where did, Nathan, where would that come in? Where would that change come in? Because when we're on the fire ground, you know, we, we get in my area, we get dispatched as writ. So we respond as writ, you know, we listen to the radio. We try to get that update of what's actually going on. Um, but in, in my company, our officers, you know, they really take the lead of, Hey, this is what we need to prepare for, you know, uh, whether like say it's a metal roof, you know, asphalt shingles or, um, uh, plate, you know, stuff like that, you know, just to give you a variety. Obviously yeah. we're not ventilating as rip. Variety of what? What was it? A variety of what? Ventilation. No, no. Um, what what, what are you ventilating? <laughs> the roof. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, but can we, we can't put that on the incident commands table you know because they have so much more going on i think the officer and the crew need to be really paying attention and evaluate what's going on i think it's having that strong that strong writ officer right like if you think if you're on that commercial or high-rise structure having four people is on standby isn't minimum anymore your minimum needs to be bigger right um and then it's setting up that stuff and and as much as your favorite topic like i want the ability to have that hose line if i want it it doesn't mean I'm always going to take it, right. but if the guy comes in and he's screaming, like me and me and Jim harp on this, this ability to have a hose line, because the guy's screaming that he's burning. I'm going to do nothing for him with a red air pack and a piece of rope. Right. And right? I think we, we also just have to remember that we all, not just the three or four of us, but we all come from different departments. And the end goal is the same, but the way we get there may be different, you know, and and we've had that talk with the hose line about, well, and Ron was like, well, the IC will send an engine over to us. Okay. Nathan and I kind of consider that like, well, that's the RIT engine. That's the the engine that's assigned to RIT. Um, But, and I'm with, I, I think both of you guys are making good points where, yes, you're right, Ron, the IC has a lot going on. So the, it's up to both. It's up to the RIT leader at that point, whatever we call them to say, Hey, I want to have more resources and the IC to go, I trust you. I'm going to order them up for you and deliver them. And you place them how you see fit, whether that is on the commercial where you want, I want writs on both Alpha and Charlie, because we have 200 feet of distance between the entry points and it's a three-story commercial or a high rise where, you know, we're up operating on the 15th floor and you want to have your writ, um, your writ placed underneath, but, you know, extricating that firefighter now means getting them all the way down to the ground floor, not just to the floor below. Or in that case, you know, your writ would include a medical staff, dedicated medical staff up on to you know the staging area or the floor below the that fire so that you can perform a lot of your medical uh procedures and protocols right there prior to trying while you know while a separate group of people is is working on the extrication plan or the movement plan from the 12th floor to the ground floor to get them in the ambulance you know i i think both of you guys make good points with that with the there's a problem that needs to be thought through the idea is, and Nathan, I agree with you. I have a manual for every building type in our first due, and I have one writ manual. 
and it doesn't always talk about it talks about you have options but it um it doesn't talk about different deployment models in each building type where that may be handy you know we have we have and, and giving those and teaching those options and i think that's why we all are in the same uh in the same idea and mindset and and actions in that we we like to teach this stuff for that reason we see that gap and and want to push the message oh yeah. now that we have james back i got some questions for him um that i had <laughs> written down hold, hold on to your hat james Palm trees, what's coming now? <laughs> palm trees, lots of palm trees. 25 grand down. worth of palm trees. James, uh, you said you were able to get your Mayday out. And, you know, you said it loud and fast and you thought you covered everything. How was your reception of the Mayday from the command? Like, did they communicate well with you after hearing that? Uh, they're... I don't remember there being a whole lot of questions back since I pre-answered all their questions for them. Right. Uh, there was the, you know, the this acknowledgement of the mayday, and then there was this, you know, writs on their way, you know, and and uh, some of the incredible fortune in this is that writ was on the Charlie side, throwing the second means of egress ladder, was walking across the Bravo side, and then forced a window that I happened to be behind. So there was a real efficiency in the deployment of the RIP model based on, based on circumstances, right? And, uh, but past that, there, there was no real conversation because as I said, is that I, I had my information out. You know, I, I, I would love to go back and go, uh, go hear the audio, right? For, for, you know, how clear it really was, but from all of the accounts, uh, as, as I said, being called a model writ patient is an interesting thing to be one. I hope never to be again. Right. But, <laughs> right. Uh, but you know, that uh, what you guys are talking about, about modifying the writ response is that the only, you know, only information you have is what comes over that report from the inside firefighter that from what you can't see, you can make assumptions about the structure. You can determine the building structure type. You can kind of pre-plan what you're going to do, but, but, there's always these unknowns, right? Vancouver has single family houses chopped up into triplexes or quadplexes. They have illegal suites in them. They have it like, like what happens in every major city, right? And, uh, and uh, it's, you know, I, I, I would feel much more confident going in as a RIT team leader on the RIT team or as a company officer, the more information I had, because knowledge is power, right? Is that you right. can make information. They knew I wasn't buried. They knew I was conscious. They knew I was, you know, mentating properly, right? They knew all of these things, right? They had a, an idea that they obviously knew I had an air supply. If I'm, if I'm able to still communicate while being in an IDLH atmosphere, right? Like these are, these are all, you know, uh, uh, you know, weapons that you can use in your RIT, RIT response to tailor your RIT response. But the, uh, you know, the, uh, I, I, I think it is funny in the context of that that you know you have this fluidity and organic kind of way of, of responding to emergency incidences yet it's still pretty one dimensional in the rit world and uh, and how that's that 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 that's got to continue to evolve right I, I think there's right. no bright bright minds out there that it will continue you know and that uh, that uh, you know the the uh, 
information being power, you know, how, because it even comes down to how I see uh, extrapolates the info. I mean, the good thing about when the Mayday goes over on the TAC channels that everybody on the entire planet just heard it, right? Uh, because I do know from talking to the, the IC at the first Mayday I ever heard about, which I, I was not involved in the scene, but I got to talk directly to our battalion chief about it, is that on the very first Mayday we, we had, probably uh, three or four years ago, uh, the IC didn't hear it at all. It was somebody else that heard it. Because the IC is monitoring two different radios, two different talk channels, he's back and forth between like, there, there's this small tiny chance, right, that, that, that he's not going to hear it. And he's ultimately the guy that has to, has to deploy the system because it was actually a, it was an engineer ran up to him and said, what are we, what's happening about the Mayday? You know, because he wanted to be involved in it. And, uh, and, uh, and then it was this rush of reality. Time chief actually told us he's retired now. He, he was, uh, came in and told us about this when I went through the company officer program. And he said that that call took years off his life. You know, and this is a guy who had trained company officers for probably 15 or 20 years. He had been teaching company officer program by now. Gone through the, gone through the Mayday process with, with, you know, making students successful with the Mayday process probably thousands of times. And he said that this idea that it's going to be this nice, nice, pleasant conversation like tabletop again for him, he said he was yelling at people, go get my guy, right? And, uh, and, then, and then him saying about, in fact, this literally took a few years off my life having gone through this. And this is a seasoned vet, you know, somebody that has taught the company officer program for like almost as long as I've been on the job, you know, and. Uh, and quite easily, and, I would say for a compliment to him, I would say he was probably tactically one of our most competent battalion chiefs at the time too. I, 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 to choose from. I, I 100% would agree. He's, he's one of those people that within the first 30 seconds, you would trust your life to him because he, you know, that he's a uh, rarer than he should be. I, I would hope that all I see would be like that, but I, I learned more in that two hours of him talking about that May day than I probably did in the other two weeks worth of company officer. Cause the rest of it is repetition. The rest of it is just, you know, uh, going through the manual to sit there and listen to his story, put things into the frame of mind, right? Is that, you know, what it's going to be like to be in charge, what these incidences really feel like in your core when that's one of your coworkers, your brothers or sisters in that situation, you know, and, uh, and we're, we're now at uh, where we've had the, the, the top two in the stats. What is that? Disorientation. Was that one and mine's through the floor? Yeah, you know th these are the most likely things that's going to happen, right? You know, and uh, and also case, with uh, Abbott, Abbott talks about he's got the stat and I can't remember it off the top of my head, but it's close to like thirty percent, if I remember correctly, of the first made it go out is not hurt, right? And it and it is usually on handhelds that it is not hurt, and it's close to like thirty percent. So it happens uh, way more than people think. Yeah. You know, and, and that's James, that's why we're doing this. You know, this, that's why these guys were awesome enough to get on these podcasts with us. You know, having people on here like you is like you said, just a simple two hour talk and you've learned so much. Um, you know, I hope the guys that were listening picked up on some of the stuff you just brought up for the Mayday crew, you know, knowing that you're conscious, that you still have air, that you can communicate all of those little hints, you know, they build up to uh to the outcome and um just hearing that actually 
reassures, you know, what we're trying to do here is, is good. So thank you. James, I want to, I, I know me and you have talked about this already, but I just want to touch on it so that anybody that listens to this can also hear it is uh, some departments will train that you are to do a lunar when you go through mm -hmm. into a mayday situation and list off all five things in a lunar in this, this fancy order. Um, and I know we train different uh, with prepare for, but uh, where, what, how, how realistic is a lunar for a man who is recently four months ago or four weeks ago uh, being in a mayday how realistic is that lunar for people in your mind to actually list off? I, I think there would be a, a validity in asking some questions further, maybe in a different scenario, but I can tell you that at no point in time after I yelled my first three maydays out into the, into the radio is that I wasn't waiting for them to acknowledge it. I'm not, I, I, I have, a, I have a, a, a narrow window of time, whatever that was, sub 50% of my Scottish CBA, plus or minus some tactical breathing. I have a window of time in which I am a viable patient, right, to where, where I'm going to be able to continue to breathe. And at no point in time did it enter into my head, even though I had done the tabletop exercise, exercising, you know, the conversation, acting as I see, going back and forth with made a firefighter even though that that's well myelinated within my brain, right? There was no point in time where I considered it even, right? It was my autonomic response was the three maydays, my rank and name, and what had happened. Well, that's who, what, where report, essentially. And, and then, and, and, and I said, I, I, I went, and when I said I went through the floor, I said I'm in the center of the house. Yeah, so right? you essentially so, did the who, what, where report, who you were where you were and what had happened. Absolutely bare basics. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I believe after identified my, I, I, I did do the unit. I did call myself fire attack, right. After I, I did my, my rank and name. Right. So that, but we were also the only crew operating on that floor. So it by process of elimination, it would have been easy for IC to figure out when they actually did their accountability on their board. But yeah, I know that I'm, I'm, I'm thoroughly, you know, sort of convinced now that this, that I understand why they, they make you ask the questions back and forth because it's, it's exercising the thought process and the mayday exercise. But I can sit here, you know, saying that that's not how it'll go. It's not how it went for me because again, I have this window of time. I have the window of time because had I damaged my air system further, how much time do I have to broadcast this information? Now I got very lucky as I was not one of those 30% where they didn't respond back. Because had they not responded back immediately, I would have waited and then broadcasted it again, right? And then, then if that doesn't work, now I'm on a different channel. Now I'm ramping my radio to, so I'm talking straight to dispatch instead of the IC, trying to go around the system, right? These are all thought processes, which I didn't have to engage, but what I would think would be the natural algorithm of problem solving. Had I not got, because I got an immediate response. I got the, holy crap, something's just gone seriously wrong from IC, right? You could hear it in their voice. It's not what they said, but you can tell that's what's going on. So, uh, and I, I think that, that that comes from, even though we learn the lunar and the company officer, we teach it slightly different. The, the information, as long as it's efficient, right, to it getting out, I, 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 I kind of wonder, you know, the, 
because that to me is the it, it's the time right you have to get the information out and i think there'd be validity in the lunar from an ic perspective more than from the mayday e perspective the lunar gives ic a baseline of questions to ask if i'm in this panicked adrenalized state like where i'm screaming into the radio unintelligible sentence fragments which we've all heard we all know what that sounds like you've been on the job longer than 30 days you've heard that right we, we actually uh on that point sorry to overrun you for a second we oh, we realize and we're trying to also teach our command officers at this point like this you the same mentality that we're teaching you know the newest firefighter about those mental skill sets they need to be able to say that stuff over the radio to the mayday firefighter and there's a chance that the ic is going to be able to calm them down by saying hey take some breaths organize your thoughts where are you next question how much air do you have next question and and getting them if they can't do it themselves trying to align their brain into that that thing I, i'm i like what you're just talking about with the lunar being hey this this is more of a from command to the firefighter and mm -hmm. you know they they yeah. can they can come back to you with that we I, we try to preach preach taught teach if you will that the www is for the fire the mayday firefighter and that lunar is the basic you know breakdown of what that command needs to work to give more information to the rit team yeah so what you say as your mayday they need to check their check boxes in lunar at the command station and pass that info along yeah. we're all yeah, on the same page there yeah you know what's the interesting thing about lunar is that the location part of it from a tactical standpoint from an ic standpoint actually trumps air in my mind i need to know where the hell you are yep because the air at that point in time is the time from for, for the rit team to get to you knowing or having a general idea or at least being able to aim the weapon which is the rit team you know that that's that's critical information right so you, you really could argue in the in the sense of lunar it's actually tactically set up fairly well right because i already know if you're talking to me that you have some air you got yep. something going on right and, and you're uh, listening too if you don't hear a vibe alarm then you have a further indicator of okay they're dang. above one third and then yeah two if it is going off like okay we need you know we we have a limited time here i mean we always have limited time but we are in the time crunch at this point it's it, 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 it's even that few seconds for your pass alarm the pass alarm's not going off. Yeah. You know that they're in that initial incident because the, I'm sure that my pass alarm is going off. I don't really remember it, right? In the, because things happen fairly quickly in my mind, right? And, but I was perfectly still, you know, again, trying to, 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 to use that, that tactical mindset, right? Of conserving because now I'm on the clock at this point in time, right? And the, the, air, is the, the air is the vital resource that I need. And, and the, the next vital resource being writ to get me out of there, right? Yeah. And, uh, have, and have you guys, as much as we're talking about air, have you guys ever played around with your packs and flowed a bottle through your MMR and a mask to the environment without your, your face on there to see how long it takes for that bottle to fully uh, run out of air? Like you mean to just wide open with the first yep. valve? No, yeah. I've, I've never done it. So, so find out. 
a few years ago, we were doing training at work and we were doing a writ competency where we had a down firefighter in the building, the engine, I writ would arrive, gather simple tools, lost firefighter, go find them. While they were in there, they had to do a face piece changeover, hand off the firefighter to another writ and then exit themselves. Well, what we noticed was a lot of firefighters were connecting the MMR and writ face piece in the writ pack and turning the bottle on before they deployed, which is something that had been taught. And as they were deploying, the mask would fall out and either the purge would get turned on or the regulator would bump hard enough to, to lose air. And a few crews arrived to the down firefighter with zero writ air. A few wow. other crews arrived, turned everything on in there, had a bad time getting the mask on the, the person because we put it on, a, we had a real live person as a victim. And we had that like, man, I wonder how long it lasts. Four to six minutes, 60 minute bottle, complete bleeding through the MMR, either between the purge valve or the Don Doff valve. And they both are a little different. Is that Not, Scott, Jim? That was, it was Scott. Now, I did a test just in the firehouse uh, in the fall with the MSA, their RIT pack. And I believe that that was a 45 minute bottle. <clears throat> I can get you the liters, you know, the, the cubic feet of air bottled sizes for their two packs. I can't remember. Um, and that was under five minutes. So, <clears throat> and I, we've been playing around with hole sizes and face masks you know, a very small, two or three small holes in your face mask doesn't seem to affect it very much. But a hole that is about, I don't know, two inches across, one inch, uh, it is almost the same as not having a mask on at all. So when you talk, James, about, you know, lack running out of air and time crunch and the fact that you were able to control your mask, had your mask come all the way off your head because your chin strap wasn't on, and you fought for 30 seconds to a minute to get it back on, you could have lost a quarter or more of your bottle of air when you were starting at a half bottle already, you know, and it drives home the point. I know I've been one that's done it in the past too, and I've trained myself out of it back into good habits, but not doing the chin strap and, and then going in and having your helmet pop off every now and again, or, you know, hearing you talk about how the chin strap kept the mask from getting completely ripped off your face, you know, all those little things, as much as we, we, leer, we see in the line of duty desk, all the little things line up to the big thing, whether it's the Domino's or the Swiss cheese or both combined, they go the other way too. And all those little things in training and preparation, you had your waist belt on. So there's no, the pack didn't get ripped off. You had your chin strap off. So you, your mask got ripped off, but it didn't get ripped off all the way and allowed you to get it back on fast because it was right there. You have a lot of experience and training in these things over the last 20 years. And all those little things add up to this successful outcome. Yeah, going through you know, listening to your initial breakdown of, of the incident, you know, I started jotting down information here and you could see like that domino effect and, and how it started to play out, even though you tried your best to push everybody to the side edges of the room. Hey, there's a hole in the floor. Let me use my camera. 
like it's very heads up on you. And it seemed like everybody was trying to pay attention to it. And like you said, you just kept going. And next thing you know, it happened before you even realized it. So it's just interesting how that domino effect keeps going. So Jim, you wanted to ask about, uh, so did they change over channels for, for Rit, James? It was, I mean, it was probably all a bit too fast for you to really know what was going on, but so did they change over channels for fire ops and leave, leave you guys on Rit? Was that actually done? Uh, yeah. Yeah, it was done. Uh, because of, we were operating, uh, tax seven, I believe. I, I don't recall our tax channel. I remember them very specifically changing the tax nine, right? And that went, that went pretty smooth. You never lost communication with the people you were chatting with. Nope. No, there, there wasn't a lot of, uh, of conversation between me and IC after the initial, uh, the initial report and their acknowledgement of it. And then the rest of what I listened to was the Mayday machine, you know, where, where it gets, where, where I said it gets hot and heavy, right. When they're, they're bouncing back and forth between the, between the, the involved parties. Right. And, uh, but I, I very specifically remember the, the tech, the TAC channels change over. And that was something that was, uh, you know, obviously was part of the tabletop examination when I went through my, my, uh, my Lieutenant or the, for the company officer program. And, uh, and, you know, this, this, this idea, because fire rounds are these noisy, organic, you know, sort of, uh, sort of environments, right. That it, it, it's really one more step in that whole, that, that whole puzzle, right. For, for RIT to be successful. And, uh, and again, from a, from a, being a RIT patient, right. Knowing that you have that direct line of communication, because, I can honestly tell you that I, that, that I, I didn't think about it. I heard the changeover. I knew it was coming. I practiced this 30 or 40 times past my tabletop, right? I knew it was all coming, but it, it, it's one more thing in the process to know that you just have this open air. If I, if I didn't need to key my mic and broadcast more information, because there'd been, you know, more fluid hit me or, or if I, my vibe alert was going off, right. There, there was this instant ability to, to communicate directly with the, the rescue team, the rescue coordinator, and IC, right? So it's uh, so it, your protocols would be leave the Mayday firefighter on one channel and switch everybody, fire ground yeah. operations and RIT over to a separate channel. No, no, RIT, RIT, RIT stays on my channel. RIT stays with you. Okay. So RIT, RIT stays um, with me. Rescue coordinator stays with me. IC stays with me. The, the whole rest of the actual okay. suppression operation yep. goes to a different TAC channel. As I'm, Sorry, go ahead, Ron. Does a different chief or uh, supervisor, if you will, maintain the rest of that incident while that initial incident commander stays with you? Uh, the the ISO becomes rescue coordinator, becomes my direct link, and he's okay, right okay. beside IC. So the so, IC switches over to the new channel as well, and the, the safety officer stays as the link to you. Okay. And, and, then, and, and the, but, but because they're standing beside each other, there's a direct link of information. Okay. IC is still the, the top of the list, but he's no longer responsible. Same as assigning an operations chief. Okay. Because at this point in time in the operation, uh, the initial IC, the captain from the engine, had become operations. And then IC, being the battalion chief, had taken it over. Usually so, when we have, uh, uh, as soon as it gets called the working fire, when we arrive and there's fire conditions, there is a second battalion chief on the way. 
that comes with the RIT company and yeah. an additional engine or truck, right? So, so we, uh, you have another very experienced senior officer there anyway, right? Should you need to break down the, the ICS system. So uh, my, it, it, had I keyed the mic and gone straight back, 99 out of 100 would have been the rescue for, or the rescue coordinator, which would have been the, the scene ISO because he's overseeing the entire rescue, right? So if now, so we've played around with it a lot in, in the past years, and it seems to come down to timing where in the initial stages of the alarm, if your ISO is not on scene yet or just pulling up and the mayday goes out and there's only one command officer at command and the attempt to go to two radio channels, we've noticed that if, if you have one person monitoring both channels, there tends to be a lot of failures at that point. But yeah, if, so. if you do switch and have that second command officer or at the command post where they're monitoring that channel specifically, instead of one IC trying to listen to both at the same time, uh, it has been successful. Um, would you agree with that? I, I think so, because that, you know, that this idea during that, you know, when you're that first new company officer that you're assuming that whole top of the tree in the ICS system yeah. is that that has to be very, very, very temporary in the beginning of that incident, because you're only one person, you're only going to be able to handle, and especially if you end up having to go tactical, it's because you're still maintaining that hat until you have another officer to, to relieve you, right? And the and one of the one of the, uh, the the real virtues in our our agency is that we're pretty quick, right? We don't have long distances between first first second third do right. Like there's help, you know. There's only a couple little pockets in the city where you really get you know four to six minutes on your own. Most of the other times you're actually pushing away past people because and that that's that that was really came into play I think in this one because they're there was instantly an officer to be ISO. There was, you know, basically instantly somebody else that could have taken over. Like even the transition from engine lines captain to operations and with the IC, that was probably three minutes in, right? To where I was now, because I was now talking directly to operations, not actually to the battalion chief, right? I was talking to the captain because he was asking for the updates and whatever was going on. So, uh, but I can really see that being in a, in a department like it's not a large metropolitan department if it's a county department or or where you have a, a large just large response district i have a bunch of guys that i know from clackamas fire that's uh, southeast of portland you know they have huge distances between their fire halls right and uh and it, i could see it being being uh overwhelming especially because this was still very early in this incident you know if i'm at 50 percent, i haven't been in there working very hard for very long you know, to, uh, uh, before I, I went through the floor. So I think that that's, uh, that, that's a, it's a really, a really good thing to, to have in the, in the back of your head as that first in company officer about. You know, holy shit, what, what happened in the first three, three right? you know, I'm going to respond as a single company where I have to try and do something when I'm, uh, when I'm already running this incident, because when it comes to tactical priority, you know, one of your staff calling a mayday, suddenly the rest of the world doesn't matter anymore, right? Is that, but you still have this overarching problem because you have a structure that's still on fire, right? You know, thankfully in my case, the bulk of it had been extinguished and there wasn't any more surprises to find, right? 
you know, based on my, on my, my, my cruise diligence when we were on that, on that fire floor. And then some of being, you know, just fortunate that there was no fire condition in the basement. Right. Because when I swept the initial burn through, we knew we were not standing on top of the chimney. Right. So these are, these are all, uh, all things that, uh, that are, are pretty important in the, in this, uh, in this kind of algorithm on these incidences, because it's a, uh, it's a lot, right? So it's a lot to just control, just to have firefighters. It's a lot to, to worry about searching properties. It's a lot to, to go through this whole process without having to monitor all of that radio traffic, right? So the, uh, the establishment of ISO, you know, it, it, it's so funny because it, it's, it's, a, it's a position that no company else really wants. You want to go in there and go play. Like I, I get paid for legalized vandalism. That's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> right and yet yet how how critical that position became instantly right and uh and then and then you're it right when when you're that rescue coordinator you're now responsible for for uh collecting as much information you're now responsible for passing that team right so yeah all uh all very interesting things to look back on the way this incident rolled out and the uh and how fortunate it is that we had the manning, right? That, that it didn't overwhelm one person right off the bat, so. Do you have any um, information on what the interior crew did upstairs? I know you said they, they were talking about getting the ladder down to you. Um, did they do anything specific? Uh, the, the, the best thing that I can, that, that I can say, and this, this is, uh, you know, where I'm incredibly happy that I had my, a 15 year firefighter up there being the, the nozzleman from the engine is that I actually was on his probationary crew the day he started, right? And uh, and as soon as I was out of commission, he instantly stepped into that role, you know, to where he was he was taking care of the other people because I can kind of imagine that the guy that was six inches behind me, he probably, you know, had an interesting mental state having me disappear right in front of him. Right. And uh, maybe you know, and, and, and I, I don't know a lot of what other happened other than what I heard when I was down in the basement. And, uh, and then the other guy being a, being a, still in his first year worth of probation. And, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, so I consider myself very fortunate because that's not always the situation when I bounce in and out in the officer pool, right? Sometimes I have two one-year or a three-year firefighter and a one-year firefighter, right? That, there, there, there's, you know, they're, they're not at that point where they, they really think for themselves, you know, to where they're, they're transitioning into that. They're not anywhere near that. They're still learning a job. Right. And, uh, and uh, I'd actually be curious and I haven't actually asked them whether they heard me yell at them not to try to attempt the rescue from what I was sitting there staring like, cause when I went through, I went through in the corner of a room, not in the center. Right. Okay. So this idea, like for, you know, uh, like, like for a double horseshoe rescue through the floor, it's not happening in this situation because you could not get to the other side of the hole from what I could tell, right. Again, reduce visibility. I don't know hundred percent, but with the amount of clutter we had in the center of the room, them trying to make their way because they would have been traveling between both holes. We like the one I created and the other one, they would have been traveling in that airspace going around them to get to the far side. So horseshoe rescue is not working in this particular case, right? Uh, and the, uh, you know, I, after the fact, I thought about, you know, you probably could have whipped the hose line in there, 
you know, had I been in fire conditions, I'm sure they would have been putting it out because they literally would have been right there on top of me, right? I, it would, they would have been making it rain over my head. And there's the chance that they could have, they could have slid the hose coming down. I don't know how big of a hole I actually left. I don't know if I went through like the Kool-Aid man, there's this giant James <laughs> sized imprint in the floor, right? Or whether I literally went through a little square like this. I don't know because I, I hadn't been back to the house. I don't know if there would have been a viable, a viable entrance going through that hole or through the floor rescue. So, and this, this was me trying to continue to do my, my company officer job of, of keeping them away, right? A, worrying about my guy that was right behind me. Right. Right. We had a conversation. We had a conversation when I was lying on the spine board and he, he said, Lieutenant, I should have caught you. And I said, you didn't have any chance. You didn't have a chance, man. Gravity yeah. worked hundred percent of the time. I went from standing to flat on that tank stem, you know, in an, in, you know, a quarter of a second because gravity works hundred percent of the time. There's no chance for you to grab me. Right. Had, had we been, had we been crawling, like not transitioning from the threshold of that, of that fireplace onto the floor, maybe. Maybe would have, because I personally, uh, 14 years ago, had that happen with the nozzleman in front of me, was going through the floor. I managed to like bear hug his legs to the hose. He only went in kind of head and torso and he, he managed to ride himself, right? That's not this situation. This situation, I was just going straight down and disappearing, right? Taking the, the, the express elevator to the basement. And, uh, and you know, and I, I, I uh, you know, I, I, I try to put myself into other people's other people's shoes about about what they must have been thinking around this this whole thing. Because suddenly now you don't have your officer anymore. Suddenly you are alone operating on that fire floor, and obviously it's an incredible hazard because we've just lost one crew member, right? And uh, and that's uh, you know a uh, a weird spot to be, right? When you're when you're responsible for these guys, and now you're the patient sitting on your ass down in this basement right calling out your mayday you know and then and then i said and then hearing them trying to plan the rescue looking up at it knowing in your head that's not going to work right maybe, maybe they could have maybe they could have that that's irrelevant right they think they're, they're smart cookies they, they might have been able to figure it out but me yelling at them not to do it right based on what i could see from the bottom like my own ground truth right is that i'm in the hole i'm staring up at what i can see with my flashlight you know uh and it, it was, you know, kind of my time to, my time to use the training, get through what I described before, and then allow the rest of the process to take place, you know, and, uh, and, and put your faith in the system, you know, put your faith in the training and, uh, and, uh, you know, sit back and sit back and relax. Right, if that's that's the correct word. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, luckily you didn't have fire on you, so it was a little more conducive to sitting back and relaxing, right? Yeah, yeah, that would have been a that would have been a whole different story, right? Yeah, and, and it, the because that's something which has come up with some of the other senior writ techs that I've talked to. There's obviously a bunch of them called me right away because they wanted they wanted details, right? Because they're they're obviously they're in their 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 personal journey as well, trying to to uh, get better at their trade. And uh, that's another one of these extremely fortunate parts of this. You know, and when we talked about lining up all of the dominoes, right? For everything that could, everything that could, for the one thing that went wrong, there was all these other things that went right. Because now, right. now I'm in a whole different world of hurt. Face pieces off and I'm in heavy fire conditions. You know, now, now outcomes are different. 
yeah. you know, and uh, and there, there's there's other other hazards, right? That are or other immediate problems that are going to have to be dealt with that are yeah. that are uh, higher priorities than the than the uh, than the the, the the spinal fracture, whatever else, right? And and that's where the you know that the the through the floor with the heavy fire conditions falls onto the crew at the top right again it's incredibly lucky that we had a, a senior firefighter because i guarantee that his next thing would have been done had they seen the fire conditions is they would have had the nozzle in the hole yeah right it, this is another part of the of, of training those initial companies because this is not Ritz's job to do this this is the company these are the people that are still alive and kicking they've realized they have a much bigger problem on their hands because yeah, it's right. huge now it's it huge goes back to always controlling the fire at the lowest level possible. Even, you know, even if you don't want to call it like, Oh, we had a floor collapse. We had say only a chair went through the floor. You witnessed the table or refrigerator collapse into the basement Well, there's fire down there. Oh, well then we better put that out. Cause that's below us. Even yeah. if there's no person in, th in that threat, that needs to be that reaction point of it's down there. We need to get lines down to that level. And <clears throat> what you're speaking to a friend of mine actually a couple of weeks before your event was on a similar call, semi-similar. They put a, the nozzle firefighter through the floor about five or 10 feet inside the front door. Now they knew they had a basement fire. So prior to entering the front door and, and it being a basement that had no access other than some windows, no door access from the exterior, they, vented if i can't remember if they vented it or if it had already vented but they flowed water through the basement window from the front yard for 30 to 50 seconds and then they re redeployed to the front door went in seconds later floor collapse nozzle firefighter rookie firefighter first fire through the floor into the basement one of my friends that teaches with me was the second position and the nozzle firefighter took the nozzle with him. So he's yelling at him, flow water, flow water, just open that thing up and attack it. And very quickly they got a ladder in and Brennan was able, as he went through the floor, he said the, the nozzle firefighter must've landed on something, either a table or some furniture. Uh, Cause he was able to reach in the hole and grab his SCBA straps and hold them at that level. And then very quickly, they were able to get a ladder to that position and transfer him on the ladder and get him up and out. But had they not flowed that water through the window, that situation in my eyes would have been a completely different scenario. And it's funny because the, there is a video of it and the person taking the video was actually kind of making fun of them from the front yard saying, oh, hit it hard from the yard, brother. So you're like, no, it's, it's just attacking the fire at the lowest level possible. And then going in to be aggressively extinguishing it, you know? Um, but uh, had that happened, I mean, when you arrived was, had there been an indication of fire below you, I'm sure your tactics would have been a little different at that point too, where you, you may not have been going in the same entrance point over the fire. And, and I don't know, you guys have, obviously you have basements up there because you yeah. fell into the basement. Um, yeah. was there another entrance to that basement, uh, sorry, a, a door entrance, or was it only windows to get into this? So, uh, 
I, I only know what's been passed to me secondhand because <laughs> I, I, I didn't, I didn't do the initial 360, right. That, that wasn't my thing. Right. Okay. Uh, when I asked for a team to go to the basement after I had found, after Mike had found the original hole, that team never did get in there. The first okay. time anybody was in the basement was when I went through and Rick came through the window. And to my knowledge, I, they actually said that I also fell into the only room that had a window. So I, 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 I can, I can sit here and that, it's very likely it didn't have one, right? It may have been just a couple of egress windows, right? And the other thing about these these board up structures is that uh, is that you may not get any any visible conditions uh, kind of at all, right? Uh, because of the fact that the structure is sealed up tight, right? Because I, I, I even call this fire was quite vent limited, right? Yeah. Like we did the initial removal of the of the plywood, and when uh, the, this vulnerable population, which which uses and takes uh, takes uh, refuge in these places, especially when it's cold out, right? Uh, that they would have created the smallest possible opening to 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 hide the fact that they were in there, right? This this is a, a, a massive problem in Vancouver, like it is in every major city, right? Where we have this this vulnerable population, right? And uh, a lot of times during the year, because of the fact we can grow palm trees, you can be outside <laughs> and survive. Right, but in this particular week, that, that you would have, uh, you would have uh, uh, possibly died of exposure had you been outside. Um, so, uh, by by virtue of the fact that it's boarded up, that also changes kind of how you can do your initial size up because you're not getting the true picture of what's going on. And uh, we we had had a a previous incident in uh, in 2009 where we had a backdraft, which resulted in, in some of our people being, being injured. And that fire was actually the forefront of my mind when we were into that place, because what had happened was, uh, was that a room was still on fire while people were moving around and somebody actually by somewhat by, by happenstance opened up the door and introduced the oxygen to that room and it flashed. Right. And then now we have a huge giant problem and people were trapped and our, and, Thankfully, the result was really good. Everybody got out alive, but it was it was hairy there for a few minutes, and that was at the forefront of my mind when this is going on. Right about that, I still hadn't seen the entire footprint of this place, and by virtue of it being boarded up, it's going to have a very interesting profile for how this fire is going to burn. You know, this idea that Nathan said about the about the way the mattress even burned and stayed in that 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 ceiling, you know, cavity and was able to be this vent limited. Uh, bent limited burn and actually burn through an old old growth for two by eight joists you know like these things are kind of a one in a million you know for even how it uh how it uh how it, it went down so it's something that with that that for uh that specific hazard of this vacant boarded up house you know there, there's two things that come to mind number one it's not like uh it's not like any other any other house because chances are it's got no power it's got no gas it might not even have drywall there's no fire separation sometimes because of asbestos abatement right and then there's also no means of egress and then in a vacant house is that these fires are not starting on their own they're starting because of a human cause right and uh vacant house is kind of a, a, an oxymoron to say right in that particular case and then from them having limited means of egress to get out, the likelihood of needing to be thorough in your search, right, is uh, is even higher. So, 
lots of uh, lots of lessons learned from a company officer standpoint for sure in the entire incident. Yeah, I, I think everything you've you've spoke to, um, it's a lot of good stuff today. You know, uh, thank God your injuries weren't weren't as bad as they could have been, and uh, Godspeed to you on recovery there. So. Um, but just Thanks, the amount of things we've taken away from this. I mean, I got a page of notes just sitting here. So um, it's really good stuff, man. Thank you. No problem. Happy to help. Nathan, you paying him for this? Hey. Oh, no, I'm listening. I'm listening. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, uh, I mean, we deliberately made sure to touch on some of the stuff. So you experienced James is what, as you know, we've, we have been teaching and, uh, and it kind of, it, it, unfortunately, uh, you got to put to practice what we have been teaching. Um, but it also kind of cemented that a lot of, a lot of what we've been doing has, uh, has been going the right direction. Right. Um, and, and we need to, we need to keep pushing pushing forward with that stuff as, uh, as much as we can and, and, uh, get it, get it happening. Right. Um, which I, which I think has always been our, our cause, but I think, uh, you know, it just helps really cement, cement what we're doing and why we're doing it. And, uh, it's good. No, it's all good. Jim's Jim's tucked out. Can you, I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll take this bit out of the recording. Was it, was it 2900 block East Broadway, James? 2225 East Broadway. 2225. Okay. If you, uh, if you search global news and look at it, they have a picture of the house on the, in fact, uh, if you search social media in general, there's a ton of pictures, even of me being extricated, right? Mm -hmm. Which, uh, which I have no problem if you want to want to pull them up and throw them on there because that like i mean the the address of the house is out there right <laughs> yeah i was on the news right is that i i hated being on the provincial news for this right i much preferred that car fire where we helped that family right that yeah. was the last time i was on the news that was a, a much better uh much better story than this one because there's one picture that i because i i haven't really looked at any of them right I, other than that kind of that one that, that of the, the fire chief and i but there's one of me face down right where my arms are out and I'm still on the spine board and my tank's even even still on so yeah and I think that's one bit you kind of touched on a little bit but that uh that importance of gear removal too is uh doing that swiftly um and and that's what that's what I want to ask you about is uh doing that swiftly and, and getting the pants and the jacket and everything off as best we can now you know, because you've obviously we've done it a bunch of times and you've had your gear ripped off of you. Uh, I think it was actually Port Hardy. I remember looking up a video on my phone. First video of it was you getting manhandled and Port Hardy out of your gear. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the easiest money, man. You just got to lay there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, but considering your injuries and knowing you're pretty out of it at that state, is there anything that you would have done different in terms of how we remove gear for better support of somebody in that injury, barring the fact, I mean, we need, there's a time factor in here um, to get you to 
a doctor and medical care that can provide a lot more than a bunch of firemen staying around on a soggy grass lawn underneath some palm trees. But uh, what's, uh, <laughs> I had to throw it in there, Ron. Uh, oh, but, uh, <laughs> but like, do you think, I mean, we get, we get, we straddle that, we straddle them on the pack, which I think adds a lot of support. Um, and then we pull them out from the pack there. And I think generally there's a fair bit of support there still because they're sliding down a very supported pack, down a pair of shins. Um, but when it comes to taking the pants off, that's a pretty uh, rough and tumble removal uh, for lack of a better term. But I, do you think there, if that, do you think that's the best way we can get those pants off in, in a case of in a spine injury like yours? Or do you think there is a more structured way that maybe that can be approached? Okay. Because um, I, I, I don't know if I touched on it before, is that uh, I taught the ER staff how to take my bunker gear off as well. Because I still, I'm still wearing my pants uh, mm -hmm. when I was sitting in the, in the trauma ward. And, uh, and, 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 and now they know, I, I think by now it was, uh, it was pretty clear, right. That they, uh, about the, because of, of, of whatever the doctors were doing about the spinal injury. And, uh, but kind of at this point in time, I'm also pain controlled a little bit, right. So, you know, your, your, your mileage may vary a little bit on this, but the instructions I gave them were actually how to, uh, how to undo the snaps to get rid of the, get rid of the suspenders. Right, so that they actually undid the suspenders from the from the pants, laid them straight flat back. They actually reached under and undid them under, like on the kidney ones. They undid them all, so the suspenders stayed. And then, and, and you got to remember, that I'm teaching nurses how to do this, right? And then what <laughs> they did was they actually did, uh, they did both boots, and then they restrained me at the armpits, one on each side, and pulled the pants straight out. And and uh, the first the first two to three days, even with the heavy amount of morphine I was taking, it still hurt to do everything. It hurt to stand, it hurt to roll over. It almost hurt to breathe, right? Even with a large amount of morphine. And I don't remember it hurting at all when they took the pants off. Is that there was, a, the, the coefficient of friction was low enough that when they pulled, they just slid out from underneath me like you were pulling a sheet out from underneath, underneath the glassware, right? So you think so, rather than take the shoulder, take the uh, straps off of the shoulders, it would be better to um uh, take a bit more time at that point rather than just flop the shoulder straps off and pull the I pants think, down you I would think you're, you're gonna have those straps i think you're gonna have to teach both because there's the spinal injury and there's the i'm just unconscious or i've had a heart attack injury yeah. right okay. because the the spinal injury is that i've already suffered this fracture now what you're attempting not to do is push the bone fragment into the core Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And, uh, and although it's highly unlikely, right. And I mean, I got up and ran on a spinal fracture, you know, this is what the adrenalized human body can do. Right. And, and paid for it later on type of thing with the, with the pain and whatever discomfort I, I, I have because of it. But I, I think that there, there's, there's going to have to be kind of a fork in the algorithm there because I would even argue that how they, how they disrobe the SCBA, the face piece and the helmet while I was belly down on the spine board, I actually think tactically that was, that was the, the right, right thing to do based on my injury set because I was not packaged. Nobody had a piece of webbing through my shoulder straps. Nobody needed to sit, sit behind me in Bob's set position because 
I'm pretty sure that in, in Bob's position, I'd have been screaming because of the fracture in my spine, right? Is that in order for me to sit like this without, like without my knees bent, right? Extremely uncomfortable, right? Because of the way that the curvature of the spine is, right? And the pressure on the pelvic girdle. So uh, if you're packaged, right? I think the way, the way that the, the kind of accepted standard of how we're, how we're disrobing, where, where the SCBA, the coat all comes at once, I think that that's, that's perfect. Right, because you can even you can even initiate CPR very quickly after that. In the case where I came out belly down and was already half packaged on the spine board by virtue of how I was rescued, I think that was 100% the correct call. The only thing I would have done was I, I would have figured out how to get the coat off uh, immediately after being rolled. The way that I taught the people from the the, the, the way I, I told the paramedics to do it, right, when they were having this conversation of whether they're going to cut my gear off, right, is that yes, I'm conscious. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking to you and I'm, I'm helping you doff my gear, but I still have suffered an unknown back injury. Like time is still against me at this point in time because I'm not in the, I'm not at the hospital yet. So mm-hmm. I think there's some real validity in, in, in looking at that, that your, your plan A, if you've pulled that guy out and he's unconscious and you've packaged him, however you've, you've retrieved him, that you go to the bobsled bob position. But there is validity, especially from a, a basement window rescue, where they have to come out belly down because you're not going the other way by virtue of the tank, right? That you expand on it a little bit because I don't think there's a way of removing your coat belly down because you have to no. get it all those clasps. And in our new gear, the zippers, you're not getting it. They have to be rolled. But what I can say is for what I instructed them to do to remove my coat worked very well. And even by then, zero pain control is that it came out very quickly. Again, very low coefficient of friction, sliding on a spine board, the coat's just gonna come off, right? So what did they do? They kept you, they just slid you down the spine board with somebody holding your cuffs? Uh, they basically uh, held me at the pelvis and then I was like this, and then the coat went up and out. Okay, Right. so you stayed so, stationary, yeah. Yes, gotcha. Versus, versus the way we would normally teach to where the patient- you move moves. the person. Yeah, five, four or five feet to get them out, right? Is that, uh, you know, there, there's going to be this element of uh, rolling with the punches a little bit because we can't predict what situation we're going to be extricating this patient. Yeah. This is why we train all of them. This is why mm-hmm. we train all of them through the floor. This is why we train up and down the stairs. This is why we train coming out of out of basement windows, coming out of second second floor windows, because we we don't know which one of these skill sets. That, that we're going to have to employ in this. And uh, writ like anything in the fire service is that it's, it, it has to be organic based on the, based on the hazards that you find. And, the, and I, I learned a great word from, uh, from Doc Blue called ground truth, right? And ground truthing implies that it's exactly what you have in front of you, right? You're not worried about the rest of the world right now is what do you have immediately in your one square meter, right? That, that's your ground truth. Right. And in my one square meter, I have a I have a company officer coming out of a basement window, belly down, uh, hurt his back. I know he fell at least eight to 10 feet. Right. I'm worried about I have a spinal concern based on mechanism injury. Uh, We know from gravity that very likely the heavy end will travel to the bottom while while we're falling. Hence why I landed on my tank stem, not my not my cockajeel spine. Right. Like all these things are are things that are uh, build the build the whole picture. You know, and why as a as a company officer or writ team lead, you know, you're going to be processing this information extremely quickly, right? But our end goal needs to be that 
as much of the gear as possible is removed, right? Based on contaminants alone, right? But there is going to have to be some fluidity in it, right? Now, I was very fortunate in there not being heavy fire conditions. Had there been heavy fire conditions, that gear would have been a heat sink, right? People would have been burning their hands, touching it. Every metal buckle they would have been undone would have been a zillion degrees, right? All these things come into play, right? And, but in, I'm very fortunate in my case, that was not the story, right? Versus, there have been other documented rescues where that has been the case and why the, the gear removal is, is vital in my mind that it's done at the RIT team level, right? Because especially by virtue of where we work is that it's unpredictable who you're getting on the ambulance. It's not, know, not you want be it to be people that know your gear, not people that don't know your gear. Right. And, and, and people from your agency that know your specific gear. Mm -hmm. right because there's a bunch of gear brands they all do up differently you you should know your agency's gear we're running around with two different sets that i know about there, there, there might even be a third right and we so got about four different helmets right now i need to be prepared for these eventualities i need to as, as a writ team member i need to know right how the stbas do up i need to know the efficient ways of getting off i need to know the helmets i need to know the chin straps i need to know the the radio strap or no radio strap wait I, I wear my radio strap on the left hand side everybody else wears it on the right hand side right yeah. is that that if because my were. radio buckets my radio bucket's gone it's mia i have the strap but i don't have the bucket <laughs> but i'm assuming that they that they undid the clasp that's great I, I i've never actually done a a declothe with a radio strap yeah we'll yeah. say so so i don't know if you've done it wrong so and too bad jim had to tuck out for uh, daycare because I know he's big on his radio straps but a lot of our drills that we do when we are teaching me and James the people don't have radio straps it's but when I when I do it at work um, a lot of guys will come do that derobing drill they don't wear their radio strap and I never really thought about it until after James's mayday so we went to do a derobing drill my shift back after that because I was actually on holidays when it happened but when I got back from holidays and I said, no, you, we've got to start making sure we wear our gear for these drills like we wear them at fires. Right. And that radio strap, boy, oh, because I also harp on the fact that it's got to, then the guys to clip it back to their suspenders so your radio doesn't flop around in front of you and stuff like that. Well, if you don't deal with that class and go take the pants off, the radio strap's holding the pants on. It, right. it, it so becomes the that. Boston Wrangler. But it's those little things, right? When we don't pre-drill these things, it goes back to that. All of our conversations end up back at the training portion before. Yep. And again, if you're not putting that stuff on the way it is supposed to be worn when these events happen, you don't find this stuff out, right? I actually... Um, Sorry, I thought I heard sign. Um, when I put a down firefighter in the um, the training scenario, when they are the victim, I um, I give them a radio with a radio strap that is totally um, it's fair game. You know, it, it's not an actual leather strap. It's it's a fabric strap that I make up that the RIT team can cut, do whatever they need to. I asked, actually have uh, just acquired a tick. And same thing, we put a fabric strap on the tick and the tick gets now strapped to, or hung on the a down firefighter, you know? So when 
you come into these scenarios, you know, the officer hopefully has their tick and it was using it. It, it, like James scenario, you know, he fell through. Now he still has a ticket attached to him. How do we defeat that? You know, thankfully it was not. It was in my hand. I did not have the strap on. Just because it, know, out of one, it would have been one more layer to the, right. to the problem of because of, you know, and and you look at the fact that by by going through that floor at some some point in time, my gear gets hung up and pulled off. Well, what happens with the tick? The same thing. It could catch on a on a on a part of a burnt joist, catch on a piece of floor, like yep. you know. And these these straps are st- probably strong enough you could be hanging by it if you really tried, right? Mm-hmm. So they 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 do add another level because that you ever see that cartoon from that like, he always does the cartoons for fire engineering and he shows what the modern day firefighter looks like and he's carrying everything but the kitchen sink, mm-hmm. right? Paul that, that's just, yeah, yeah. That, that's literally what it feels like sometimes. Right, is that uh, you literally are catching everything but the kitchen sink, and, and thankfully that the tick strap was not one of the issues, but I know my radio strap was, and I always do it up on my on my rear buckle, right on my pants because I, I don't want it to shift around. Uh, I, I did notice the first time I ever went through an entanglement box wearing one, right, that that was an interesting feeling, having that grinding into the bottom of your body, a nice hard piece of plastic, right, and it's one more snag hazard that that you have on your gear, you know, I. I used to look like that Paul Combs firefighter when I first started on the job and I had all my fancy kit. Now I'm pretty streamlined, right? Because, you know, if you have crap hanging off you, it will get caught up, you know, and that's a, that's a simple reality. And if it can get caught up, you, you really need to know where it is so that you can, you know, if you have Nathan standing over top of you in the box and he decides to wrap these a cat five around your glove strap holder, you know, the, you may want to know where that is. So, because maybe the easiest thing is not to cut the wire. Maybe the easiest thing is to disconnect your flashlight and drop it, right? Or disconnect your, you know, your, your panel keys or whatever else you've got on the hanging off your gear, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's finding that fine balance of, uh, of having the stuff you're going to need and uh, uh, most of the time and having that streamline like you say and it's I definitely used to be same everything I could and it's now I I have all my stuff for self-rescue and emergencies and then that little 18 inch tool bag man that's like all non-emergency tools get put in that tool bag so I still have all that stuff for calls but it's not an emergency I can spend five minutes going back to the truck to find that thing I don't I don't need it in my pocket I don't need a crescent wrench in my pocket I don't so I'm going to undo a toilet so we can put water down it. Yeah, yeah. That, that sprinkler can flow for another couple of minutes while I go get a crescent wrench. I don't, I don't need to pull one out of my pocket. We, we can yeah. do other things. Yeah. I, I think if people have lo- loaded down gear, they're really in, a, in the wrong mindset. And, um, you know, we know what mindset that they're in. Oh, it also goes activated alarms, water leaks, and, and lockouts, you know. I get yeah. that. But that one time, you're not going to be in that, that water leak, you know. I, I hate to see how much stuff people carry on them. One for fatigue, you know, you take yep. it out, there's 30 pounds of gear. Two is just all the snag hazards. They try to go through low profile, reduce, uh, reduce height obstacles and they all hung up. Yeah. Or they try to find their wire cutters, but it's in a pocket with 17 other items and you've got to yep. freaking play. Where's Waldo with your wire cutters in a, in a steel box where you're trying to find your stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I think it, yeah. it, it can be very easily summed up 
as long as pretty much the same as a lot of the other stuff we've talked about is that there is a tactical priority to everything that we do. Right? You, I, I would even call it from the time from 0700 when you arrive at the station, there's a tactical priority, truck checks, get yourself ready for the day, personal readiness, putting out your gear, all these things are tactical priority. There's, there's no reason why that wouldn't apply to the placement of gear in your pockets. Like the, you know, finding my, my face piece is one thing that that's a certain drill. How did I like, uh, uh, be, even though I wear my, my radio strap on the left-hand side, which is atypical because I have a personal one, my mic is also on the left-hand side. So when I'm calling my mayday, I'm not fumbling for it, right? My hand is like this right over top of my heart. I push my, push my thumb and I have my PTT switch. You know, like that, that's, that's so basic stuff, right? Because I see radios worn 15 different ways out there, right? And there's probably more that I don't know about, right? But you, you have to develop your plan so that it's the same every single time. Again, based on tactical priority. What, what are the most important things that I have that I needed in that basement? I needed air, right? And then I needed help. And by knowing where those things were in the dark while wearing my gloves, you know, these, these are, these are realities is that I was not going to take any of my PPE off. I need my PPE back on, you know, this, right. uh, because, you know, and this comes down to the drilling and training mindset of making this stuff as realistic and as hard as possible. And the worst case scenarios, because you probably will not see the worst case scenario, right? The, the, the stats don't say that you'll see the worst case, but you'll see something, right? You'll, some part of that worst case scenario will be in there and you'll have to solve that problem. And recognizing that you have this, this tactical priority and everything that you've done up to now, right? The, I, I don't see the tools in your pockets being any different. You should, right. you should put the, the, the tools which you will need to save your life or somebody else's life where they should be, right? The rest of it, as I said, it can be in lower pocket. It can be wherever, right? If you're searching for your crescent wrench because you're, you know, that can be anywhere. It could be inside your boot, right? Because it, you don't need it immediately, Right. And for each person, it's going to, you know, depending on their, their skill level and their comfort level, it's going to be different things. Right. Certain people like different things. Some people like different types of wire cutters, whatever. You're going to need to plan that in your gear and then plan that in your head and then have this and then have that mindset that if I get into trouble, I will instantly reach for whatever tool I need at that time. Yeah. I, I think it's all reps, you know, but that goes back to our training of, knowing where your radio is, you know, uh, knowing exactly, you know, how your face piece is coming back over your face, stuff like that, how the regulator goes in, you know, the, the simple reps are, are going to build upon that muscle memory, you know, and, and the biggest takeaway is, is wear your damn gear correctly. Like you said, you had your chin strap on and that saved your ass. I mean, I, 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 I went through, I went through years where it wasn't on. Right. Is that we all had that stage. We all had it. Yeah. And, and, I mean, and that right there is a vital component in the outcome. Now. Right. I mean, could you have gotten your, uh, your face piece back on after it came off and you lost your helmet? I'm sure, you know, you know, if you really had to work for it, obviously, but you also couldn't know, you never know. So, yeah. and like Jim said, how much air do you lose? Right. 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 <sighs> yeah. And that's the, and that, that comes down to it as you hit the nail on the head there, Ron, is that, that's personal dedication to knowing your craft and personal, personal dedication to knowing the anatomy of your PPE is right. that thankfully 
I didn't push my PB to its limit. I think I may have pushed my body to its limit, right? Yeah, to, right. To, to where, you know, the, there was some decision-making that changed outcomes in this, right? And that, that's a, it's a, it's a hell of a thing to have sitting in the back of my brain, right? And I've thought about it every second of every day since for four straight weeks, you know, about that because it, you know, we have such a unique line of work, you know, we have such a skewed judgment compared to the rest of the world. So a, a good example of this is one of my, one of my wife's colleagues was over and she teaches elementary school and uh, he was over there like this incredible outpouring of kindness that we've had, which I'm so grateful for is that we didn't cook for three weeks. Everybody, including the furnace repairman brought us food, you know, like it, and it's, it's such a strange time out there right now. You know, sometimes we would just, we would just, uh, you know, we, we, the ring doorbell would go off and there'd be pizza or whatever chili sitting out front on the deck, you know, and, uh, that's uh, awesome to hear. But, but, uh, but the, the, the point about my wife's colleague is that, that, uh, you know, he, he's kind of standing at the door and I'm, I'm still in the hospital bed. This is in the first like week that I was home. And, uh, he had heard a lot of the story. Cause obviously my wife was off work immediately. You know, we have two kids. There was, you know, it greatly affects everybody when something, when an incident like this happens. Right. And, uh, and, and, the, and he was like, you know, a man, if that had happened to me, I'd have been lying in fetal position, crying and sucking my thumb. You know what I said back is that if you stuck me in a classroom with 30 grade fives, I'd be in the corner in fetal <laughs> position, crying, sucking my thumb. Right. right. Because it, it, I trained for this. I didn't know what was going to happen. I trained for the eventualities. He trained for this chronic problem of dealing with a bunch of elementary kids, which I'm scared of. Right. He's scared yeah. of falling through a floor. I'm scared of a bunch of kids in a classroom. This is just reality. Right. It, it shows that, you know, that, uh, because people believe what we do is amazing, you know, and it, and that's it's such a such a weird occupation because of that, you know. And yet, I I have such respect for for elementary school teachers because I I have I, I can't even fathom doing that day in and day out for two hundred and forty school days a year. Yeah, I'm out. Thanks, but yeah. uh, and uh, yeah, so it's it's really funny to to have had these conversations with with both with. Uh, with other firefighters and from people from the general public like that, who, again, with this, this unbelievable outpouring of support uh, for our family and how, and, uh, and that's been a huge difference, I think, in my mental outcome of all of this, you know, that you, you, you sort of take the family a little bit for granted because unfortunately the fire service is a family in every sense of the word. A lot of yep. the negative ones as well, right. Is that, but yet we can have incidents like this, which instantly galvanize and people that I hadn't talked to for years, you know, were suddenly on the other side of the telephone, you know, wondering, you know, wondering how you're doing and the, the kind of constant checkups in it, it. It makes an incredible difference in, in having gone through an event like this to be able to treat it for what it is, is that this, this is one of these, this is a critical incident, right? I had an extremely smart man telling me that a uh, few last week that, you will never be the same after this, but that's the point, right? It's called your CIT, your critical incident transformation. What will you be after this? You know, what I'll be after this is I will be, A, I'm bored because I have to spend a lot of time sitting down, right? <laughs> so this is the time to exercise the mind, you know, and, and, and why I've, I've made it this goal and why I'm incredibly happy to join you guys today to tell the story that hopefully gets further out there and people can learn from it because that's the value in this now is that I can't go out there and train the skills it's going to be months before I get back in an entanglement box. It'll be months before I get to teach with Nathan again. 
it'll be months before I'm somebody's company officer again. This is the reality that I, that I have right now. And, but it doesn't mean, cause I was actually being a little negative talking to, uh, talking to a psychologist about it, about this, this question mark of time off that I have. And, uh, and uh, he, he informed me that you don't have any days off. And I kind of, and he's like, this is your time to come back stronger and faster, more educated, right? This is your body telling you that, that, because now I have a limit, like I have a 15 to 30 minute window that I can be vertical and then I have to be sitting again, right? Because of the pain. Thankfully, I don't have any mobility restrictions outside of paying attention to my body, right? Because of, of how lucky I am that I can fracture two vertebrae and have, didn't need surgery, didn't need anything else to, to, date, to date anyway, right? And, uh, but how important it was for this, this doctor to tell me that this is not time off. This is time off to learn. This is time off to teach. This is time off to share, you know, or, or, or time and use it wisely. Right. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the, uh, that, that, that speaks and furthers the mindset we're talking about is that this is the tactical mindset. There is no days off in this job. You can't train too much for it right is that it it you know it causes injuries it causes causes death this this is this is what we work in and uh and but this 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 idea you know that keeps coming from the forefront of my mind is that the training changes outcomes it's not 100 of the time but in my particular case it, it was it was the only thing that changed the outcome was training from myself and from that rescue team you know and it's uh it, it really can't be overstated, you know, and, and those days when you're, you know, you're bored sick at the station, when you're in that 10 year doldrums, you know, I mean, what, um, that, that, that's a big thing I see with, uh, with our guys. And I felt the same thing as around that 10 year mark, you know, you're pretty, you're pretty well set in, you've learned your craft. Right. And, and then you're really sort of wondering what the, what the next kind of challenge is going to be that, this is important at every level. This is important from the day you put that uniform on until the day you take it off the last time, because you will be, you know, you'll potentially be anytime we roll one of these jobs, some part of that, that, that tool, right. That, that changes outcomes and that what you have practiced in your career, that will come out under these periods of stress, you know, the, the subconscious ability to react, you know, that that's a learned behavior. It's not instinct in human beings nearly as much as it is in the natural world. And, uh, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, it really is mind blowing on this side of it, right. To, to break down the pieces. I'm really happy that we've had a chance because to, to digest it and have other people look at the, because I learned something new about it every day about the, uh, about the experience because other people see things different than the way that I tell it. Right. So, right. Well, I, I think that's, and what, what more can you really say, you know, like fall back to your training, get your reps in practice and, and don't become complacent. That's, you know, just not it, about, it's, an, it's not about a nap, a movie and two workouts a day. It's about being good at your job. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's okay to have the rest of it. If you put in the, put in the work. Right. You know, yes. that, that what's, what's that other saying, right. Is that don't expect the results from the work you didn't put in, you know, like the, these things build on each other, you know, you, uh, you, you, you have to, it's the end that, you know, our, our line of work is, uh, 
it's so unique to the rest of the world, but yet not really at all. You know, every, every single player in the NHL, every single professional football players, they put in the work. So it's, it's no different for us. We're just industrial athletes and we, uh, we need to treat it as such, but. Absolutely. Anyway, well, James, I, I really appreciate you uh, coming on and sharing your story. Um, like I said, I took a page of notes, you know, that I'm going to go back and some of it's reassuring what we talk about, you know, on our podcast here and in classes and some of it's new stuff that I'm, I'm going to adapt into the playbook. So I, I really thank you. and it, It's very appreciated that you took your time out and, and, and told us your story. So thank you. No problem. Happy yeah, to do Jim, it. Jim's out, but uh, yeah, we'll uh, we'll close it out here uh, as we're nearing the three-hour mark, I think. But um, yeah, well, you know, James, we talk lots, and obviously, I appreciate it. And we'll talk more, and whether it's about your countertops or whether it's about whatever. But <laughs> <laughs> I was just over there, Ron. I just uh, poured uh, just a poured. My first ever concrete countertop with James watching from the corner of his eye. <laughs> I keep in, keep well, an luckily, eye. Luckily, it was a small one. <laughs> you know how hard that is to do, right? You know how oh, hard it is to let somebody else pour yeah. you down concrete? Yeah. Yes. Right? Oh, so, dude, I feel because yeah. of where we live, I can't do a lot of the handyman stuff because they want it paid through like the strata funds. Yeah. It drives me nuts. I had to watch. I had to leave the house one time because they wanted to replace our front door. It took two people six hours. They didn't replace the jam. They just replaced the door. 12 Here's screws, unscrew, rescrew. That's it. Six hours. I went, took the dog for a walk, came back. They're still here. Went grocery shopping, came back. They're still here. I'm like, I'm going to take the dog for another walk. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. I'm glad I don't have to deal with that nonsense. Get the hell out of here. So I know James is probably feeling the same way. Crap. If right. I could only go for a walk, I'd be out of this house right now. I don't want to watch this incompetent fool pour my countertop. <laughs> <laughs> James, if there's one air bubble, you better send that countertop back. <laughs> Thankfully, it's getting epoxy coated, so it, it'll it'll be okay. It needs yeah. a little brine on the top, and then some epoxy on it will be fine. But yeah, it's, it, it's so funny to have to just stomp on the brakes in your life. Right. And uh, yeah, you know, being three quarters of the way through that kitchen reno and then having to trust other people like I, I trust issues already. Right. And trusting somebody <laughs> else to the countertop, you know, it's like, but no, yeah. it's good. Right. So. All right, fellas. Well, I got to run. Right. James, thank you again. Hopefully, uh, I gotta go pick up the kid pretty much. Hopefully, we'll catch up soon. So, Nathan, I'm sure we got more to talk about. <laughs> Absolutely, my friend. All right, guys, All right. be safe.